This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Top of the morning to you. Hey, uh, post-MLK, Martin Luther King Day, Junior Day, uh, hangover. I have a, I, I'm in the fog. I was sick Friday. Man, four days since I've been here. Now I'm just looking at Ben thinking, what am I doing here? What is Ben doing here? Good morning, everybody. Got a great show for you today. Uh, today we're going to be talking about how the fact that you have a home. Well, I don't have a home, Ben says. How the fact that humans have homes, it's the key to being human. According to our first guest in the show, who will be on in just a few moments, Dr. John Allen will be joining us. Um, he is has been studying this. He wrote the book, Home, How Habitat Made Us Human. And as a neuroanthropologist, he's saying it wasn't the advent of fire that made man – or not the, the ability to control fire that made – that made the great evolutional progress of Homo sapiens. Was it the wheel? And it wasn't the wheel. Was it the DVR? It was the DVR. Okay, there we go. We solved it. It wasn't food. It wasn't <laughs> oh. the fact that we were growing and, and living in tribes and and groups and communities. He says because all of that takes place around a home. So one of the big leaps in evolution was when we finally created a concept of home, a place that we needed to have safety, a place where you would have the table to eat or the place to eat together. Home is the center of humanity. Not the, not the DVR. Not the DVR. Because hmm. at my house, it's a little bit different. Well, let's just say some haven't evolved. Okay. Like the rest of us. Hmm. Interesting. No offense. I'll have to hear what he has to say. Yeah. He's going to be fascinating. We'll talk to him in a, in a moment. So, you know, get ready. We're talking home. Um, But uh, we really, if you want to talk home, you talk Donald Trump at Liberty University. He just went right in there and made himself right at home. (laughs) But he is so cringeworthy. You just don't. He talks. He talks to them Christian folk. But he can't sell that he's into that, really. He just can't sell it. I feel bad for him. He's trying so hard, though. You know what he sells. See, Ted Cruz is out there trying to gather all the evangelical vote. And yeah. He's, he's dropping Bible verses in the middle of his political stump speeches. And... D- d- would, Ted say, would, would Ted say two Corinthians? Two Corinthians, right? Two Corinthians, three seventeen. That's the whole ball game. They're laughing. Where the spirit of the Lord, right? Where right. the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Is that the one? Is that the one you like? I think that's the one you like because I loved it. <laughs> liberty University, where Ted Cruz kicked off his presidential campaign. Yeah. In a first, what, he said Liberty College. What? Yeah. What was later? What they say? Uh, they said it was a. Um, Every month, the school has to get together. They have a mandatory assembly, and this time, the the speaker was Cruz. Oh. 
Oh, it was Cruz. And I, th- I think Don, they yeah. might have done something similar yeah. with, with Trump. And uh, the kids just sort of show up and listen and go, eh, whatever. But when you get a guy up there that goes, what, what did he say, the two, two Corinthians? Two Corinthians. Yeah. He, just, he just doesn't know. You, you say second Corinthians. He didn't know that. Well, wouldn't you know that? But but then then what he does is he's he really is a great speaker because he knew he knew he made a mistake so he's like right 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 so he's and well they're laughing at him yeah and it wasn't you believe said, in this but he but he he uses the phrase you yeah. you you believe in this it wasn't use use anyway he's he again but you know where he nails it so they they know he's not an evangelical they know he doesn't know the scriptures but. He then says, and this is where he's killing it, I am going to fight for Christians. And that's whatever that's what they want to hear. I will fight yeah. for Christians. Of yeah. course the Muslims are like, What? What about us? Well, he's already <laughs> made his position clear on yeah. Muslims. They're out of the country, so he doesn't have to worry. Yeah. They're out, Christians are in. He came in like a wrecking ball. Did you hear his his new sort of campaign theme song? No. Clip eleven. Well, I thought we had it. No, this is different. Coward. These girls, these are real dancing girls. Yes, singing. Well, they're and they're, they're twelve year old, yeah, nine, yeah, they're young kids, old, yeah. young girls. So, wow, it just goes on sounding like a North Korean propaganda <laughs> album. <laughs> I, saw, um, I saw some station. I can't. I don't know who it was that also threw up like Kim Jong Un's. <laughs> Uh, dancing girls with the yeah. same propaganda dance. Well, it you know very similar. I I get it, but it's it's they start playing. You're like, this is so weird. What are they doing? But Donald really is. He's still leading. He's killing it. Isn't well, he? yeah. I mean, he's he's yeah. up there. He's killing it. You know who else is in trouble? Is I mean, in a way, Hillary. She thought she was just going to kind of blow through this thing, but now she's going to have like a, you know, that pesky dog that you just can't keep off your leg. Well, it just it, keeps. It's good because then, I mean, she doesn't just say or say what she's going to say and then just sail through. She yeah. now has to actually listen to her competition and adjust to what the people want. And according to HuffPo, she's saying. she's got a she's bracing for the long primary. <sighs> She'll get to the uh, the big, the bigger primaries down the road and be able to clean up. But these smaller ones looks like Bernie's gaining some traction. So. Well, yeah, but see, if he wins one and two, and then you know. That's what he's saying. He more goes, money. He goes, I, I wasn't even on the board really in Iowa when I started this, and now I'm I'm leading in some counties. Yeah. And now he's he's saying we'll just move on down the road and attack each one as it comes up and see if we can win Florida and uh, uh, Nevada's coming up. So oh. see what happens. <sighs> well, uh, good news, bad news uh, from my home front. My mother-in-law, Marilee Tanner Priest, passed away. Had Alzheimer's for 12 years, early onset, beautiful woman, had just as incredible, finally passed away. So it was a great blessing. But, you know, what do you do when you lose your mother? It's sad, but. It's really sad. It's really interesting to mourn because then you start to see it's hard. Death is a hard thing. And some people just don't know how to do it. No. And and some people do. Some, I mean, yesterday I think we had two or three meals brought to my our family just from hmm. friends. Like, yeah, you need. We'll feed you. Here's some food. So I'm. I mean, it's good for my belly. 
Then there's some people that they don't know how to approach you mm-hmm. when it happens. It's really awkward. And then some some actually just don't approach you because they don't know what to say. So they just kind of hang back. Yeah. But that's fine. We get it. But anyway, we'll love her. She's amazing. It's hard. Uh, Glenn Fry from the Eagles. Man, Eagles, I did not know how much great music they put out. Holy Hannah. That's my – Holy Hannah Montana. Oh, really? That's my new thing in my house. Why is that? I don't know. Um because it's not a swear word. <laughs> okay. Well, at least you're clear so on that. We're like, holy <laughs> Hannah Montana. Why do you go to that? Okay. I know. But listen, here, here's here's one of the great Eagles songs as well. Glenn Fry was the fa- one of the founders, the founding, you know, one of the founders of the Eagles. Nine years is all they worked as a band, but created some of the most, I think, incredible music around. Mm. Does this bring back memories or what? The Eagles, they're a band that when you just listen to them, it just is, it's Americana right there. Seriously? Are you kidding me? No, I'm just trying to think. Life in the fast lane. Like, I don't have memories of the Eagles. You don't have memories of this music in your life? I've heard it in different places, but it's, you know. Ugh. I'm telling you, you're too young. I have some oldie collection compilation stuff from yeah. movies where they include this song. But if I said Lady Gaga, I just think Miley me. Cyrus. You've you've got experiences there. Well, I, you know, just speaking of Hannah Montana type stuff, right? <laughs> oh man, the Eagles! Come on. Maybe we got to just listen to their music. We could. Whatever you want to do, Matt. It's ben, your show. Ben ruined that. Yeah, good job, Ben. Just... <sighs> I'm sure I could find three hours of this. This might not be a bad show. Really? Just play the Eagles? I don't know if quite we have clearance for that, but... I could just... We... I don't know. We'll get a call if it's not yeah. appropriate. Okay. <laughs> just keep playing it. Okay, now we better go to the news. Blah. Anyway, um, so... Welcome back. For those of you that took the holiday, uh, the Martin Luther King holiday, hopefully you were you also, you know, celebrated the fact that it wasn't just a, a free vacation day. Civil rights changed the world. Come on. MLK J. MLK Jr. Let's get to the headlines. Anything going on around the rest of the world, Terry, that we need to worry about? There is. Thanks, Matt. Washington Post journalist Jason Rezaian has reunited with his family at the Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. Rezaian also and two, uh, had a two-hour meeting with his editors. Three other Americans were released in the prisoner swap deal that occurred on Saturday. A fourth American that was released decided to stay in Iran. The four were swapped for the release of at least seven Iranian Americans held in the United States on sanctions-related related charges. Many of them decided to stay here in the United States. Hold it. So many people were released in this yes. exchange, and some just decided to stay. Here, yes. And there, one. One, one guy, of Why would American, he stay there? He likes the country. Wow. Not necessarily the government. Maybe he wasn't worth releasing. I was I was confused by this also. The brother of the released Washington Post uh, uh, journalist, he said, uh, yeah, people like the country. The government's what they have a problem with. He goes, I live in San Francisco. 
the, the, the city's great. Government, maybe not so good. Well, it's like a dog in a kennel when you open the kennel and they just keep sleeping there. Yeah, they just don't want to leave. don't want to come out. It's too comfy. Yeah. Hmm, well. I don't know. Interesting stuff there. Three empty life rafts were recovered in the search for 12 missing Marines off the coast of Hawaii. The Coast Guard said it in a statement early Monday morning. Search and rescue crews also discovered a fourth life raft, but workers were still trying to retrieve it. There is no indication from the sightings that any survivors have been aboard any of the life rafts. The 12 Marines went missing after two helicopters collided during a nighttime training mission off the Hawaiian coast. The development comes as the search entered its fourth day and one day after a Coast Guard official reported that debris had been de- recovered off the north shore of Oahu. Mm. So that's a ongoing story there. Sad. Uh, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder is likely to devote much of his annual State of the State speech to a drinking water emergency that has put Flint, Michigan residents at risk and engulfed his administration in controversy and criticism. Snyder, a Republican, is expected to further detail plans to address the contamination of Flint's water with lead during his address uh, to the GOP-led legislature tonight. Michigan is already uh, proving... Uh, providing lead testing filters, bottled water, and other essentials in the city of 99,000. Some say customers shouldn't have to pay their water bills because the water is unsafe without filtering, but the city is still sending out bills. People how, help can't. me understand how come the the governor is in trouble? Because he just, I mean, it, I it's get how, it. It's how politics tends to roll uphill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he's kind of involved now, now, and he's said some some things. Okay. The mayor of Flint is in trouble because he went on TV and was drinking the water, going, it's fine, don't worry it's about fine. it. It's fine, his teeth are falling And now out. he's like, uh, let's not drink that. They, they took the water, instead of taking it from Detroit, uh-huh. the yeah. city of Detroit, where they pulled it out of a filter, out of a, a lake, the lake there, they pulled it out of a river in Flint. Oh, boy. And that was contaminated. It was 19, like they were saying, like 19 times more corrosive than the previous water, which ate through the lead pipes, leaching lead into the water supply. And wow. A, and a bunch of kids started developing symptoms of uh, Legionnaire's disease, oh, which man. is lead yeah. poisoning. Yeah. And so now, I mean, the water comes, they keep showing you the water from the tap is brown. Ugh. Just filthy, contaminated, just not, not, not good for human consumption. Yeah. And now they're running around water bottles around the city, and then there's stories of the city water company sending out bills for you to pay for your water. I, I'm betting that the 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 governor must be in the GOP. Yes, because Hillary's like jumping on this like a yeah. Hmm. Okay, I was just wondering. And the mayor of Flint apparently is in Washington D.C. to ask President Obama to declare a, an emergency yeah, I situation. Yeah, like say let's fix this and yeah. So I just, yeah, it's okay. interesting. And uh, I'll give you a, another update. I know I know you're very interested, Matt. Oh, for sure. The Oregon militia. Oh yeah, they're continuing their wildlife refuge occupation. They have been paving new roads. They've been knocking over fences and taking down security cameras on the property. In their latest anti-government display, the armed group scaled ladders Friday, disabled surveillance cameras, and blamed the FBI for installing them to survey the occupation. The black cameras previously attached to poles at the headquarters were a symbol of, quote, mass surveillance, Mm. the militia spokesman said. Uh, He dared the FBI to come pick them up. I dare you. I dare you to come over and get them. On Friday, a member of the group was actually arrested by authorities for allegedly commandeering a federal vehicle (laughs) to pick up groceries. Hey, Jimmy said I could take the truck. <laughs> he took the truck to the, guy, the grocery store, and they arrested him uh, for illegal camping and a bunch of other. Well, stuff. this just really there's there's squatter laws, right? Yeah. That you know it's going to take a lot to get them out now. Now they're in there, and if they're making roads, 
Yeah. They paved a road and then they had a press conference. <laughs> I thought they were going to retreat. Did they, didn't they announce I, their retreat I, I, I didn't rules? See, I didn't see anything on Friday announcing what they were going to do to kind of wind this down. It just sort of ramped it up more. Well, more power to them. <laughs> so they're paving roads. Huh. Rancher Palooza. Thanks for the Rancher Palooza update. Ah, interesting stuff, folks. Hey, um, our next guest is going to be Dr. John Allen. And uh, Dr. Allen is a neuroanthropologist working at uh, USC. And he's going to be talking to us about home. Believe it or not, what may be one of the leading um, evolutionary uh, you know, causes of Homo sapiens growth to where we are today might just simply be the concept of home, having a home. Having a safe place to eat your meals, you know, to want to protect, it may have be it may be the key driver to why we are so, you know, uh, incredibly um, creative, and and have so much, uh, so many more advancements going on in our lives simply because many, 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 many moons ago, home, we had homes, changed the whole game. We'll be talking to Dr. Allen about his. Uh, his hypothesis here, and he'll be teaching us the ins and the outs of the power of home in creating healthier, more stable lives. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've all returned from a long vacation, being exhausted from travel, only to feel an overwhelming sense of comfort as you walk through the doors of your own home. Now, according to our next guest, Dr. John Allen, that feeling of home is more than just an expression. It is part of our evolutionary heritage. And our homes have helped us become the species that we are today. Dr. Allen joins us now on the show today to talk about his book, Home, How Habitat Made Us Human. Dr. John Allen, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Great to have you. I love uh, what you've done here, and I love what you're, you're teaching us. You know, historically, we kind of always think of evolution, like the big steps of evolution, I guess, were... The ability to, you know, control fire, the ability to, um, I guess, maybe, huh, uh, you know, work as a, as a community. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're saying maybe even more important would be really this concept of home. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I think you, you've mentioned two things that I think were essential about, you know, that were made better by home with, with fire – uh, you know, you really have you do become wedded to a place on the ground. Yeah, somewhere. And also yeah. for social life, um, and part of that social life is raising families. It's raising little kids with great big brains that take a lot of food and a lot of time to to grow. And also having more than one child at a time because that's something that's really distinct about human beings as opposed to the great apes who have one mother and one kid at a that's time. That's right. And have to wait till that kid grows up. So all this taking place at a place that we might eventually be call home. In fact, we had another um, anthropologist on from the University of Utah that talked about the role grandmothers played. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you've gotten into that. So, oh, yeah. I mean, it, uh, talk about that. What is family, it? Family, um, you know, a home base 
simply makes all that easier, makes sharing food, because there's a lot of uh, one thing that fire made possible was to, you know, be able to deal with great big hunks of dead protein. Yeah. And also big roots in the ground. And so, and then, but too much to eat for one person at a time. And so sharing became, and, and, and getting back to raising children and bringing fathers into the, and, and grandmothers into the, the equation. Yeah, I guess that was, that was it. I mean, the men used to go hunt. And the the women might, I guess, they go forage, but the ability to have a grandmother living a little bit longer and being around made it so that the mother could have more children. Yeah, and especially the and the grandmother or an older mother helps raise those last kids. Mm-hmm. You know, all those things make a difference um, in 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 a world you know with it, which is quite competitive and which there is you know all sorts of of. Uh, diseases that we're we're now thankfully uh, not having to deal with. So yeah, investing in a num- large number of children and feeding them all at the same time. This is all helped by having a, a home environment. Is it now? And talk. Is it? Uh, I guess it was having. Is it a tangible home that we're talking about? A building, an edifice? Or is it simply the concept of that that good warm feeling that we're safe? Yeah, I think it's much more about place. Okay. I mean, yes, we're people build things. Right? Yeah. We build things to surround us. And we do that type of protection does get us something. But if we're when we look around, people live in all sorts of different structures and some people feel at home in a in more of an open landscape than even in a in a covered structure. Nonetheless, they sort of define this place that's theirs, um, as opposed to the rest of the world, whether it's the wild world or other people. And I, and I say in the book, it's almost a perceptual trick, but it's a perceptual trick that lets us rest and restore and feel a little bit uh, more comfortable. And rest and restoration are really important for us. And I extend that beyond. It also gives you a place to think yeah. in the broadest sense. You can make plans for dealing with that outside world. So that sort of comfort and security is literally kind of an oasis for thinking. Yeah, man, I have I never thought of that too. Yeah, you could come back from the hunt and rest confident. Yeah, and even if it's just a little bit more secure, you know, it isn't going to stop a hurricane or a tornado. Right. It isn't going to stop a disease, not even a determined whatever might try be trying to get you. But just a little separation uh makes it gives you a little more comfort and so I think it gives you time to to deal with things mentally and that's again another of our our abilities. We, we can make plans and think about them, and we can share them with others through language. And did this talk about the creativity of it all is, I mean, it would seem like if I'm not kind of more as nomadic as I used to be, and I'm now kind of fixed more to a location, I might burn out resources in my area. Is that what fostered creativity? What, why would this make me more creative? And why, what does it have to do with today's, you know, kind of advanced society we live in? Well, in terms of creativity, I, again, it enhances that because it, it thinks, I mean, nomads also, I think, can carry the sense of home with them, mm. as, oh. as, as you can carry a sense of home yeah. with you when you move from place to place. And so I think that's important. That's uh, an important ability to develop in childhood. I think um, in the modern world, we can have this sense of home. People ask, have asked me, you know, can you only feel at home at home? I yeah. feel at home at work. Yeah, And again, I think that is certainly not unreasonable. We, we feel at home, not so much because it is home, it has been home in the past, but we feel at home, a place where we have relationships with people, 
that are productive, where we define this, this place that's ours as opposed to that place that's theirs. Um, so I think you can, you, can, you can have homes in different places. You can create these home environments um, in different locales. What um... – because you're a neuro, you're a neuroanthropologist. Explain that. How does how does well, that work? Well, I've done a lot of research looking at brain structure and brain evolution, and also cognitive aspects of psychology in different cultures and with different, uh, also in terms of mental illness and cross cultural how that's expressed. So that's how I wind up at this sort of neuroanthropology place. I worked with neuro- neurologists quite a bit, hmm. so they like the idea of calling me a neuroanthropologist. <laughs> yeah. So I said, hey, I'll, I'll take that. Well, but so really, because it is an evolution of the, the brain, I guess it's an evolution of how we think. And, and this really is, it seems like a psychological concept too. Exactly. I mean, I think it's, I, they say that this whole idea of feeling at home, you know, people used to not do research on feelings very much. Um, but with brain imaging, and uh, you can actually now get at feelings or feelings for feelings. And, and I'm not saying that we have a unique feeling for home, but it's this sort of package of what some people have called background emotions. You know, it isn't you don't jump for joy the whole time you're at home. You're not hopefully right. you're not angry all the time when you're you know about your home. But these sort of uh, you know comfort and security are are there to keep your body in tune. Homeostasis I, I refer to, and so I think. Uh, it's applying those sorts of feelings to to this home environment that's uh, unique in us. Does does this stay with us as humans? Is it, I guess is it so because it was uh, you're you're kind of citing it as an evolutionary process. Then it's kind of inherent in today's humans mm-hmm. to want this feeling, to have this feeling, and I guess to be motivated by this feeling. How do we? How do we? Um, achieve it today and, and do you sense that uh, i guess this could continue to change too where people don't have this well i think you achieve it i think the, the way it's been achieved like learning language learning how to deal with people socially is that it has to be it's done while you're growing up during these critical periods of childhood and i think if you look at say kids in revolving foster care how much trouble they have if they never uh wind up in a forever home as they mm-hmm. call it uh, if, they, if they age out of the foster care system, they have all these problems. They have a lot of uh, issues, but I think one of the issues is really it can be hard to ever feel at home, to feel secure in a place, and to feel secure with people. And so if you develop that in an earlier age, then you can have that later and develop in your own family or in your workplace or wherever it is productive to cooperate with people who are sharing the space. Oh, it's so true, isn't it? And, and it really... Um... I mean, it is debilitating. It seems like, especially. I, I'm sure you've you've gotten into all the other uh, theories about attachment theory mm-hmm. and detachment theory, and now how many relationships are being impacted by the fact that people are didn't maybe feel that sense of home when they were younger or yeah, safety. I think this would get, I, and I think, and it's it's sort of the same thing with about dealing with homelessness. Um, the people who are homeless have many of them have. Uh, especially like economic homelessness, as opposed to say because of a mental illness or something, they really have a profound sense of disconnect and loss and not being part of society. And so, I think with, in terms of attachment, when you're growing up and these things don't develop properly, it should give us a lot more respect for this home environment um, in a lot of different ways and why it's important to enhance it. 
Yeah. Um, we're speaking with Dr. John Allen from USC, and he is uh, he is a neuroanthropologist working at the Dornziff uh, Cognitive – is it Dornziff? Dornziff. Yeah. Cognitive Neuroscience Imaging Center and Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. And he's, he's just teaching us about his research um, around home. And as a as a neuroanthropologist, uh, it's I, I to me it's so fascinating just to know that some of these things we hold so dear, like family. Uh, we I just had a my mother in law passed away of Alzheimer's, and but it's so amazing how home is is so important. We all now will go to grandma's home and be with grandpa, and it helps us heal as a family. And I mean, it's it's essential and. The simple idea to think that um, it's man, it's that old. It's from our you know we've evolved mm. this concept of home. Um, it's really powerful. Uh, you, I know, have to go soon, uh, Doctor Allen. So let's just maybe. I would normally take a break here, but teach us teach us the concept um, a little bit more, if you would, about uh, about how home and homesickness. Is um, how did how does that impact us? I mean, because in a way, this concept of home can be debilitating, yeah, couldn't well, it? I mean, it could make it so we can't leave home, we can't, we yeah. won't go progress, we don't want to grow. That's right. Well, I think, and, and, and that's one extreme, and then, but I think, and that that isn't, uh, and that's home where you, you you almost say that the relationship with the place has overtaken the relationships with people. Mm. And to some extent, you know, home is about people and place yeah. and things. So it's almost like it's like hoarders live in a home, but they're, they're, for home for them has a, is a different relationship, relationship with things. And I would say how homesickness is really a sign. Take, you know, some psychologists have called it a mini grief. And, and it, it's the grief that results when you, you know, grief, normal grief we think of and, and that sort of temporary depression that goes with it is a very natural reaction to the loss of something significant hmm. and if you are without you if you grieve because you've lost your home like you might grieve because you've lost a loved one um that's a sign that that was a significant part of your life a significant relationship and luckily most people can move on right you, you get yeah. past your grieving whether it's for a person and you get past your grieving whether it's for a place now some interesting studies have shown that in establishing a new place it happens faster if you are also establishing relationships near or where in that locale. Mm. So clearly, again, feeling at home is also feeling at home with people or with people who are nearby. I, I guess, and that's, um, it's, it would be inter- it'd be probably, I guess, easier for some, maybe some that have a little anxiety, a little social anxiety, mm. to, to be connected to their room mm-hmm. more than the people. I think that that's that's true. Yeah. And then you know they go away to college and they no longer have their room and they've got a l- bunch of weird people. Exactly. And of course, homesickness. All the most of the research is done on college students because they're yeah. the, the the handy big population who are all homesick for that's psychology. Right. Right. That's right. And they're all on campus. Yeah. <laughs> so you, they're just an easy group to, yeah. to tackle. Well, it really is a fascinating concept. How has it changed? You, how has it changed your your life? I mean, and and I mean, because of all the things you could have hooked together, mm. language, you know, fire, food, sociality, you somehow connected really to the the real root of it all. Today, at least, is home. Yeah, I mean, I, I work a lot at home. 
I've, I've been working at a distance for a long time. I don't know if that made me think of it. Hmm. Um, I've been interested in home partly because I, I originally uh, studied people with, you know, studied mental illness and people who suffer from mental illness, and a lot of them suffer, you know, also homelessness is a, a major issue. And I've been struck over that in doing field work in lots of different countries, you know, that, that this sort of pervasive idea uh, holds. And yeah. so I, for my own personal life, I really do try to think about where I'm living and how my family, uh, you know, works within the home. And hopefully, you know, my kids learn that this is, a, a, you know, a social environment. It isn't a, a, uh, an environment where they're served. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, it, is, it does affect me in that way. I, I, look at my, I look at my home differently now than I, than I used to. Yeah, I I do too. I'm kind of more of a social psychologist, mm-hmm. and I understand that it's the relationships that create the meaning. It's the interactions that create the the development. And I think, um, yeah, they almost become sacred, right? It's like, okay, mm-hmm. we've got a. And I, I mean, the home would be the same concept. Does it matter? Because every culture is a little different in their right. homes. And have you noticed that this is this theory? It it it's strong cross culturally and. Yes, because the household, Zanthropos, is always a basic unit. Yeah. Now, it may look quite different, right? It may be a different kind of structure, and the composition could be quite different, right? It's not a nuclear family. You know, even in our culture, you know, we think extended family, we go, you know, as far away as grandparents or aunts and uncles. Right. But, you know, some cultures would have much more extended and much more complex ways of giving up a household. And so we see that that unit is, is really basic. But what it's been, and why it's more of a, a psychological or a cognitive thing is because it doesn't have a physical bound. It's conceptualized. And then I say I define home from the inside out, not mm. from, from the outside in. And I think if you get down past old, in a lot of that, you get to this core sense of home, it's a feeling that we, we tend to share. And it really, uh, I mean, I guess that it can be, if it's from the inside out, it's, I mean, it could be your uncles that raised you because your parents died. And I mean, it could be anything. It could be two moms. It could be a mom and a dad. It's just the concept of being able to know you're safe and protected and able to grow. Right. And it could, you know, and it could be a house. It could be an apartment. It could be a jail cell, right? Do you have these stories about? Interesting. Yeah. You don't want to leave, leave jail. Are, are there roles, I guess, that have always been played? I mean, I guess, guess homes also have some inherent hierarchy. Well, I think there is, there's, there's usually defined, uh, there's going to be a, an older adults, and a home is there for children, right, to right. raise children. And I think that's sort of the basic, that's the, if there's a purpose for home, it's, it's to, to get these kids grown. And so that, can, that imposes a sort of uh, structure in that way. Yeah. And uh, some people refer to humans, though, as, as, as sort of cooperative parents, cooperative breeders, that in the sense that you do bring grandmothers into the story. I mean, uh, you bring fathers in, which is unusual in, in the great apes. Usually it's the mother and an offspring. Hmm. Um, but either indirectly or directly, the, the, parent, the, the, the fathers are, are contributing to the raising of offspring, either through resources or just directly in humans, and it's been in different cultures. So, you know, we have that. The basic structure, though, is that I, I would say I'm not I'm not thinking about too much about before is this there are children and there are older people hmm. it's um as a dad uh, I have six kids big mm. family John yep. and a grandbaby what would you what advice just as we kind of wrap this up what advice would you give me 
uh, kind of trying to, you know, with my wife, lead our family. Anything we could do to make sure that we keep home healthy? You know, the one thing I, I talk about in the book, and about again, about some psychological uh, and social psychology research, is, is synchrony. And I think it's really critical to, have a syn- to synchronize your lives. And if people who are sharing a home, um, traditionally have been people who live their lives, at least to some extent, in step. Hmm. And so when you have a big family like that and you have all these different interests coming, we have this in, in a small family with people going off to swim practice and this and that. Um, I think it's really important, and this is kind of gets at the idea, oh, you've got to share a meal, right? you right. got to eat dinner together. You gotta do. But, you know, I think that synchronized lives uh, lead to all sorts of positive feelings toward, you know, towards others in the relationship. Um, as long as, you know, you can negotiate that if it's so complicated. Someone says, oh, I'm missing out on going to the movie because I have to do this with my family. <laughs> but still, I, I, I would suspect even that can pay off. So in a, that's one thing off the top of my head. I love it. No, I think that's great advice. Well, Dr. John Allen, we appreciate you. And your, your wonderful book sounds like a great uh, read, Home, How Habitat Made Us Human. Thank you for joining us today, and just thanks for your interest in home. Okay, and thanks for having me, Matt. You bet. Take care. Okay. Doc, Dr. John Allen um, from USC, again from the, uh, the Dornsife uh, Cognitive Neuroscience Imaging Center and Brain and Creativity Institute there at the University of Southern California. Uh, interesting stuff, folks. That concept of home, that feeling of home. It's with you today because of your, uh, your, your ancestors that uh, fostered it, and it's always been, apparently, it's, it's been the key. It's one of the keys to... Uh, longevity to healthy to healthy humanity interesting stuff we'll take a break folks when we come back we'll do a little coach's corner on how to make a home a home stick with us this is the matt townsend show you're listening to us right here on sirius xm 143 byu radio Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting research uh, from Dr. John Allen about home. Home is where the heart is, right? And uh, so to some degree or another, we make this home. We, we, we make it. And uh, it's, it's probably very much up to us. Again, as a, as a social psychologist, my view is very much none of us are just born knowing who we are. None of us are born knowing what life is about. We engage life. And it's been very interesting watching um, the passing of my mother-in-law, uh, Marilee Tanner Priest. It's um, just to see how it's a, the, the dying process, for example, is very much – uh, it's a learned behavior, and my wife and I had many a discussion about whether we should, you know, take our kids to see her when she's not in this great state of Alzheimer's. And is my wife's point was that oh, I don't want to make it, I don't want to make them remember her this way. But one of the things I just remember learning too as a young kid was you have to eventually stay in the space, right, and be in the moment, and. Sometimes those moments aren't pretty, like the passing of someone. 
Um, but like our good Dr. John Allen was talking about earlier, there is that sense of home that you can be safe. Um, you can be safe with your family. And so as we gather together to help each other mourn and to get through this process, there is a, there's a, an elevation of our own experience, of our own safety as a family. Now that now we're going through something this this serious as death, we're starting to realize as a family that we can do stuff. We can handle hard stuff. In fact, my wife said it's teaching me that I can do hard stuff. So, man, to go through that together, um, powerful. And one of the things we've we've really learned is to stay in the present. You know, treasure the sweetness of everyday moments. And if we could do that when we're when we're healthy, we might have more opportunities um, to enjoy the times that we have together now. A lot of us uh, might live more out of the future. Some of us live more out of our past. Uh, past, I've noticed, just as we're going through this grieving process, the past seems to bring up a lot of guilt. Oh, I wish we had done more of this. I wish I could have done that. I wish I had been there for that. Or some of us don't live out of the past. We live more out of the future. Well, what, okay, what are we going to do next week? And you can even see it just in this process of losing somebody that you care about. Um, like, are we worried? too worried about the things we didn't do? Are we too worried about what's going to happen now? I mean, with the passing of someone you love, you start to worry, I wish I had spent more time with her. Or we might now be worrying, oh, what are we going to say at the funeral? And yet in the space right now, there's an incredible peace. Ah, And the peace, though, is, is in the present. So one of the powerful things, if you want to learn to treasure your family, stay in the present. Stay in the present. When they're asking you the questions and you're so tired and you just want them to go to bed, I just want you to go to bed. Don't ask me any more questions. See if you can just stay in the present with them, your kids, a little bit longer. Let them talk. Ask them what they're thinking about, what they're feeling about. Um, Power. There's power in the present in our lives. But, you know, we're sold a lot about the future and we're sold a lot about the past. Uh, let's learn to live in the now. Another tool we can use to kind of treasure our, our home and our families is to live out of love and not fear. So many of us are so fear-based, right? We're so afraid so-and-so is going to be mad. Don't try to motivate your children out of fear uh, or you're just going to create fearful people, fearful kids that don't know how to say no. That if anybody induces a little fear in their life, they're going to just keep saying yes. Nothing inhibits a person's ability to treasure family uh, more than the focus of fear. Our own fear, our own pain, our own suffering. They're very self-absorbed, right? Those are self-absorbed paradigms. Very natural to the natural kind of man. But they do keep us from offering the best to the world. Sometimes we got to just love ourselves enough to say no more or love others enough to say, I'm going to let you go. I had a couple in my office a while ago that um, they're just so miserable with each other. And uh, I was talking to the woman and she kept telling me that 
uh, she just wants him to be happy and she just she doesn't want to hurt him and she but she wants him happy but she can't do this anymore but she's really stuck and i said well it sounds like you really love him and you don't want to hurt him anymore well yeah i don't well then why would you stay with him and keep hurting him now the minute i we got into that we found out she was too afraid to leave him in the end she tells the story that she's staying for him but in reality, she found out she's just too afraid to go out on her own. And the amazing thing is, over time, I'm convinced, and I've seen it with others, that once she's strong enough to actually be able to go out on her own, he's going to have to change the game. He's going to have to get healthy too. Some of us say stuck in our lives and our marriages. We stay that way because we're not independent enough to do what we need to do in our lives. We're not strong enough to leave him out of love and we're not strong enough to stay with him out of love. So we kind of stay with him, but we're not in the marriage. We're constantly wanting to get out. We need to live more out of love, uh, not so much out of fear. And then the other one that I think is really important in families to kind of create treasure and to treasure up the sweetness of your family is to offer your gifts as a family. Every one of my kids has so many different talents, and every child needs to be offering their gifts. And what I try to do with my family, and I'm not perfect at it by any means, is help find those gifts with them, help them, help point them out, lead them to resources. And then as a family, what if we could use our gifts to elevate the world around us? And we use that, and we talk about it, and we use all of our – it's very clear, uh, the gifts and the strengths of, of my children, and we talk about them. Who should do this? Who should do this? Who would be better suited to handle this? We could also use those strengths to teach each other, right? So I can have one child that's strong in you know the, the verbal area. Go help the one that's not as strong in the verbal area. Send those two kids up to the counter to talk to the the person behind the counter. Um, it's it's powerful when you are using the family unit as a way to kind of foster gifts and strengthen the gifts. How powerful will that be if all of us could leave our family unit knowing what our unique gifts are to this world and be motivated and excited to share those gifts? Powerful, right? Treasuring the sweetness of family and home. Uh, again, we got to learn to stay in the present live out of love, not fear, and offer the, our gifts to the world. And as we're elevating each other with our gifts, our abilities, and celebrating those gifts, we, we really, um, we're elevating ourselves as well uh, along the road there. Anyway, interesting stuff, uh, interesting stuff, and uh, not easy, but worth it. Seems like it always works that way, doesn't it? <laughs> the hardest things, and sometimes family and home can be the hardest thing. Um, it can also be, as we're finding out, just with the passing of someone we love, it's sweet, sweet, and sweet memories, but hard, right? But that pain that we're feeling from the death of someone we love, it, it simply is coming from the fact that we love someone that deeply. The deeper the pain, the deeper the love. It's the price we pay for, for having home. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break, folks. That's the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, and that's the Coach's Corner. We'll uh, be back next hour. More ideas, more tools 
to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Popcorn Day. Mm, 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 mm. That salted, buttery little piece of puffed goodness. Well, it used to be puffed goodness. Then you put butter and salt on it. No, that's what makes it. If you just ate the popcorn, it's actually quite a healthy snack. I know. Then you just, but if you just ate the butter and the and the salt, you got your goodness. And if you eat the popcorn, you got your puffed, puffed goodness. By the way, Iowa. Uh, they're 12 days away from the big showdown. I thought you were going to say Speaking something of about puff goodness, corn. I was going to say something about corn. But corn. 12 days to Iowa? 12 days to then Iowa. Then it's over. Then it's, then, then it's New Hampshire. Oh. Then South Carolina. Then I think Florida. Then Nevada. Well, I come Nevada gets in there early. Is it Nevada or Nevada? Depends on which side of the country you're on. If... It seems like when you're in Nevada, it's Nevada. That would be my way of pronouncing it. How do the people that live there say when their name? In the East Coast, it's more like Nevada. Oregon, Oregon, for some reason. That's <laughs> something that's done. Hey, um, it's Tin Can Day. Celebrates the contribution of uh, the tin can to the uh, storage of perishable foods. That's great. I didn't know we needed to celebrate that, but I appreciate it. What kind of celebration do you have for Tin Can Day? You you tie a bunch of them to the back of a car. That's called a wedding. Drive away. That is a wedding. And most of those cans end up being aluminum anyways. Yeah. Whatever happened to the old tin can? It's too expensive. Did you know right now, I read this last night and I thought this was interesting until I saw the actual price. The price of gas per barrel is actually, it costs more to buy the barrel than it does to buy the gas. (laughs) But a barrel, it costs like $99. Oh, does it really? So you, you say that line and you're like, oh, wow. But then you read that how much the price actually is. And you're like, well, it hasn't. Okay, whatever. That doesn't mean anything because the price of a barrel, the actual metal barrel yeah. is $99. Wow. Whereas gas is about anywhere. Or oil, a gallon, a, a barrel of oil is 28 to 30 bucks now. That's got to make them mad. This will all go up. But I just saw somewhere in the United States, gas was below a dollar. In Michigan, th- th- I-, I wasn't going to— I think they're pulling it out of the river there in Flint. They could be, lighting on fire. Now, in Michigan, there's there's a, there's a gas station. People yeah. have found it on the one of these apps that you can find gas cheap gas prices. They're selling it for $0.47 cents a gallon. <laughs> now, they're doing this because they're in a price war with three, two or three other gas stations uh, right around capitalism. them. So that's not the real number. Right. It's just what they're selling it for. But have you ever bought gas at 47 cents? Yeah, when I was a kid. I don't know if it was that low. That's that's I really remember low. it being I remember it being 80 cents a gallon. I was listening to some people over the weekend talk about the situation and part of it is 
The reason the price keeps getting driven lower is because there's several countries, well, not several, but many countries, who are, their entire economy is based on the oil they produce. Yeah. The government owns that, 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 that production, and so they take in all the, the funds when they, when they make money off of it. Well, they base their whole budget on that, and as you know, governments never adjust the budget. No. They just they keep you it can't. at the same rate. Right. And so in, when the price of, of oil drops, they just keep make, selling more. They produce more oil, sell more oil. Right, which just decreases the so value. So they can try to keep their revenues high, even though they're putting more out there, which decreases the value across the globe, which means they have to continue to producing more to keep their revenues See, up. See, this is – It's a circular – and this is the problem. And now all of a sudden we have all these electric cars. And Iran has their 500 million barrels. They're ready to dump on the market oh, too. Oh, boy. So Great. You, we're going to lower gas. Ah! It just bothers me. I want the old days. <laughs> we're paying three and a half, <laughs> 350 a gallon. I guess it could be we could have bigger problems, huh? Um, did you hear about this man posing as a Walmart employee? I did. Brilliant. He sends away the cashier, and he steals money from the register. Excellent. <laughs> it was a great plan. He walks up and says, hey, the manager would like to see you in back. Yeah. And yeah. she goes, she looks. He's wearing a, a vest. He's got okay. the blue vest. Okay, so There's she someone runs off. tied up back in hardware. I made that up. Somebody tied <laughs> up back in the hardware display, and he's wearing – I mean, I'm pretty sure you could probably go to the local thrift store and get a Walmart vest. You might be able to find one. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a police uniform. Or if you walk by their uh, their back rooms, you probably just grab one off a hook. Wow, look at you! Yeah, just you got to think how. Think Holy f- cow, criminal minds! Oh, I am. That that's why some of this stuff is ridiculous because you could just think through a more logical way to commit the crime. Wow, you are twisted. <laughs> the man who was wearing a Walmart Walmart employee vest entered the store in Fairfax, Virginia, told the cashier that he was needed in the office. Fairfax County Police said the man then took over the register, even checked out a customer before stealing an undisclosed amount of cash. Then he left the store and drove away in a silver Honda. Wow. An ins- that's an inside. That's an insider. That's bad. Again, you don't draw attention to yourself. No. You walk up there. You just casually say, hey, you need to go. If there's any resistance, you just walk away. Thanks for shopping at Walmart. But the, the cashier that was there said, oh, okay, I'll go talk to the manager and left. Probably, probably didn't you know, lock or register or anything. So you just continue. A customer comes up. Instead of no, yeah. doing something odd, you check them out. How hard is it to check somebody out? Apparently well, they make it fairly simple. He did it. I don't know. Have you seen those lines of people trying to check themselves out at the self-check? Yeah. You have to go slowly. Yeah. People go too fast. They don't put the thing. They well, don't put the th- whatever. The, we probably shouldn't item. be talking about this because now, other people are like, "Is that all you got to do?" But I was watching. You don't even need a gun. I was watching a movie. The best way to go on the run. Oh boy, yeah, is to walk. Because the second point. you start running, they, they see you. So another just walk. another important lesson here on the Matt Townsend show. The best. This way to- is the show where we give you the information you need. <laughs> That's right. If you're going to go on the run, you walk. better walk. Just walk. Don't draw attention to yourself. Make sure you know the doors, which way they swing. Is this a pull or a push? Just read. Allow them to say pull or push. Yeah. If it's a push, you you pull, you push. You don't pull. If it's a pull, you pull. You don't push. When you start panicking and start hurrying, that's yeah. when you end up on the Matt Townsend Show. That's right. And if you sweat too much, Botox. Botox that sweat away. Okay. Like, you know how Ben gets that sweaty lip? 
Yeah. When things get tense around here. So if he Botoxes that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I've been wow. telling him he needs Botox on that lip, and that sweat will go right away. Nice. I told him I'd do it for him. I got a liter of Botox out of uh, you, you Walmart. Put, you can put botulism into Ben? Oh, yeah. That's gross. He just won't let me do it. <laughs> I don't have a needle, but I have a turkey baster. Oh, that'll work. <laughs> It's so hard. Hey, um, today we're going to be speaking about this coloring therapy. Have you heard about this? I know you have. I bought my wife a coloring book to help her through what she's going through with her mom. Now, when we say coloring book, these are very intricate. These are adult. Very detailed. This is a, yeah. It, it takes you quite a while to, to uh, complete these designs, and mm-hmm. people find it very therapeutic. Mm-hmm. My wife, yeah, she bought me a coloring book for, I believe, a four-year-old. Hold on. Well, yeah, that makes sense. And, I guess uh, I, I was questioning as to they have like power. They have like superheroes, Avengers mm-hmm. for adults. Yeah, you can go get like a detailed Batman whatever book and color it. And I want my wife to do it, and I want her to hand me some of the, and we'll frame them and put them up in my office here. I have a lot of great artwork in my office. <laughs> well, you have artwork. I have great artwork. You might be overstating with the great. You're jealous. Um, anyway, so we'll be talking with Mary Grace Barbarian about this coloring therapy. Is this real or is this just, you know, somebody at Walmart or somewhere trying to sell you Yeah, is this a fad? Is this, I think it's a, real. Is this the pet rock of our generation? No, we, we, got, we sat down as a family and started – a couple of us started doing it together. And it's mm. very – It's there's nothing – it's just calming. It's like – Instead of yoga, where you got to actually exercise, you can just sit in your chair now, and just color, feel the same level of peace. Sure, you'll die younger, but you'll feel great. So we'll be talking about that in just a few moments. But uh, first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry? Thanks, Matt. The Supreme Court announced this morning that it will decide the fate of President Obama's immigration actions this term. The actions are aimed at allowing millions of undocumented immigrants to apply for programs that could make them eligible for work authorization and associated benefits. The president unveiled the programs over a year ago, but federal courts blocked the implementation in response to a challenge brought by Texas and 25 other states. Since then, nearly 4.3 million immigrants who would have been eligible have been caught in legal limbo. Hmm. So that will go before the Supreme Court. They're getting on it. I mean, it seems like we're getting, with Paul Ryan, some movement. This would be an executive action that would expire at the end of President Obama's term, right? Right. So the Supreme Court is not going to hear this for another couple months. They won't decide on it for another couple months after that. Yeah. So by that point, we're into what, September? Yeah, so it's so It's done. They're right. just tying it up in the courts. Members of the British Parliament held a debate on Monday over a petition calling for Donald Trump to be banned from the country. This is the kind of man that we want in our country. His words are not comical. His words are not funny. His words are poisonous. His policy to close borders... Uh, if he is elected as president, is bonkers. Donald Trump is free to be a fool, but he's not free to be a dangerous fool in Britain. Mm. Bonkers. I love that. Yeah. Bonkers. You know what's interesting? They're talking about Donald Trump. They are. So, love him or hate him, he's causing a fight. His uh, Donald Trump staff yesterday was asked about this debate that went on at the uh, parliament in yeah. Britain and they found it very comical that a the British government is worrying about the election in the United States. 
Interesting. And so it's unconventional. The uh, the debate had no no vote will be held at the end of the debate. The politicians are expected to treat it more as an opportunity to air their views on the divisive Republican under under the protection of parliamentary privilege, which legally shields them from accusations of defamation or slander. Hmm. So nothing's going to come of this. They were just airing their opinions, and I played it because somebody played said bonkers. Yeah, with an accent, which it's is a great cool. word. Iran has compiled or com, uh, complied with terms of the July international deal to curb its nuclear program. The United Nations Atomic Energy Agency said on Saturday, the U.S. along with five other world powers agreed to lift economic sanctions on the nation when the U.N. verified its compliance. Iran will gain access to 50 billion in frozen accounts overseas. The U.S. still has a ban on trade and investment with Iran. So that happened over the weekend. Iran, they seem to be friends with us now. Well, we'll see. I mean, they're releasing people. They're we're releasing people, detaining Some, sailors, and then yeah, releasing them that a little very, bit later. Very nicely, just let them all go. Kind of interesting. The Republican National Committee said Monday it no longer is partnering with NBC for a February 26th debate in Houston. While NBC partnership has been canceled, the RNC chairman said a statement that the committee is not cutting ties with Telemundo, which is part of NBC Universal. Uh, CNN will now broadcast the debate, which has been rescheduled for February 25th. On uh, what's uh, this all stems from the debate in October when CNBC yeah. went over the top with some of the questions, and so in kind of retaliating against that sort of line of questioning, they've cut ties with NBC almost completely with huh. these debates. Well, it's wow, that's a big deal. It is so. So the GOP does not like NBC. Apparently not. Not after what CNBC did. Weird. Yeah. And this I I found, thought I'd share the average American home. We were talking about home in the first hour. Yep. It's where you go. You feel safe. Home is where the heart is. place where you can regroup and then go back and attack the world type of thing. The average American home is inhabited by at least 100 species of invertebrates, like spiders and lice, according to new research. Oh, boy. In the 50 North Carolina houses that they studied, scientists found 579 different kinds of insects, spiders, and most commonly found species were flies, spiders, beetles, ants, and book lice. Ben, you got one on you. It's you a biggie. You might want to stop that. Ugh. So in your home, yeah, how many? probably about 100. Oh. Somewhere around 100 different species of invertebrates. So bugs. They sound like this. Yeah, they're just creeping around through the walls. Ugh. My thought is, if you don't see them... It's fine. You're fine. Unless you're missing the cat. If the cat is missing... Then worry. Yeah. And you just hear a faint little... Meow. I, there, there are several products on the market, kind of a bug defense. You can yeah. spray the perimeter. I do that, and all of a sudden they just start piling up, and you vacuum them away, and you're done. Yeah. Ugh. No? No. All right. I didn't want to hear that story. Bugs. That story's not real. That we we made that up. Ah, sadly it's true. 100 and something. Uh we're going to take a break folks. If it stressed you out to know that you have that many cre- creepy crawlers running around your house, we're going to show you how to uh how to relax. Up next, Mary Grace Barbarian will be joining us. She's going to be talking about uh color therapy. You know, it's a simple little art therapy. Use a coloring book. Coloring therapy, pretty powerful stuff. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
of the wind Can you paint with all the colors of the wind Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little Pocahontas for you. Colors of the wind. When was the last time you colored something in like a coloring book? By yourself or not, you know, not even with your kids. It might surprise you to hear that the prominent psychiatrist uh, like Carl Jung, even many, many years ago, early uh, uh, on, prescribed coloring to his patients to help them calm their minds in the early 1900s. The trend is now picking up a lot of speed uh, again since its beginning um, in 2011 uh, with now major uh, book publishers publishing coloring books for adults. Joining us today is Mary Grace Berberian. She's a certified art therapist, and she's here to talk about the therapeutic value of, uh, of art and adult coloring book trend. She joins us now live from New York City. Mary Grace Berberian, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, studying up on this. It's hard to find somebody that is an expert on art therapy that can educate us on this. Is this is this real? Uh, is there is there a therapeutic value to a coloring book? I think there's therapeutic value in all art making opportunities. So I would say that yes, there is therapeutic value in coloring. I think that it's restorative. I think it's calming. I think it can provide a sense of mastery for people who engage in this art-making form, for sure. Hmm. I mean, it's it, – and I guess if it helps you, it helps you. Well, <laughs> right? I'm a therapist, so I believe that any opportunity that you have for self-care is a good one. Um, so if you're coloring and you are getting some stress reduction from it and it's helping you to distract from the other stresses that might be surrounding you, then for sure it's doing your body good. I think um, what has been challenging is that this is not therapy. It's therapeutic hmm. and has therapeutic potential, but this is not our therapy. Yeah, and what, what is the difference for those that are keeping score? <laughs> <laughs> so our therapists are like graduate level trained practitioners, and we rely on the same inherent qualities of the art-making process, things that we can help people to find a sense of restoration and balance from engaging in the process, but when you're engaging in art making times, and this is something you probably all can relate to, is that you might have associations that come from the art making process. And then you create a product, an image that might be relevant to you or might trigger past experiences or perhaps underlying conflicts that you might be experiencing. Hmm. So that's where the practitioner comes into play because that practitioner can illuminate the process, can help um, explore the issue. And most importantly, offer intervention. Coloring books, of course, can do all yeah, that. Yeah, I guess. I mean, they hand you the image, and you your benefit is you get to focus and center and color and well, we don't, lose yeah, we yourself. Actually, yeah, we actually don't really rely on coloring books in art therapy sessions. We usually encourage more spontaneous expression. Yeah. But for some clients who might be a little bit more timid and looking for it, who might be kind of intimidated by the process, coloring a preformed image might be a great way to begin. Like mandalas, which are circular forms, have been around in many different civilizations. Um, and that provides a great place to kind of focus and begin. 
So we can use them as starters, but usually the work is a little bit more in-depth than just coloring a preformed image. And there's research. I mean, there's research about the therapeutic or I guess kind of the meditative benefits of those mandalas, right? Uh, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, we let's face it, we all like to have a significant level of control in our lives, right? <laughs> we yeah. have these to-do lists. We have other things that we like to feel that we are, you know, masters of our own domain. So if you're coloring a preformed image, you're focusing, you can color within the lines, you have control over what you're doing, and at the end, you have a pretty aesthetically pleasing image, that's going to make you feel pretty good, mm-hmm. you know, for, even in that moment. So there's therapeutic potential in that, and we also know that focusing on a very meditative, you know, activity does it has been proven to reduce blood pressure, and it does bring a sense of calmness to an individual. So the research supports all those therapeutic potentialities of it. I mean, really, you you make a great point. Like therapy, you think of the boy who was abused or who lost his parents, and he's going to see a therapist, and they ask him to draw pictures of his family, and it gives some insight into his subconscious. And I mean, it's it's powerful. It, I, and then then you can do the a real therapeutic type of intervention. Really, I guess what we're saying with the coloring books, it's more like going to yoga. Exactly, it's self care. It truly is self care. It's stress management. And I'm not trying to dissuade right. the listeners who are looking for opportunities where they can kind of just de stress. Absolutely. And I promote that we all de-stress a little bit more in our lives. But um, for those people who might have some more serious stress in their lives or might be looking to reconcile some issues, that's when you would take it to the next level and seek the help of a therapist. And you, Mary Grace, you, you, are, you are an art therapist. I am an art therapist in New York, yes. And, and you've got... But you've got a ton of degrees. Uh, and so it's not... Yeah, this isn't just feeling good because you're painting something beautiful, which is therapeutic, but um, Mm -hmm. you can actually go in and probably, you know, customize, as I guess most art therapists could, customize a real intervention through art. Absolutely. And each each intervention, um, each therapeutic intervention is really considering the developmental needs of the client. It's considering the past trauma. Um, It's also considering where the client is really willing to begin from, because we always start from where the client is most ready to begin from. And some of them want to just use pencils on paper, and that's fine. Others may want to, you know, smear paint on a canvas. And so we always respond to whatever the client needs and then also tailor our interventions according to those needs and what might other, you know, other kind of stressors or challenges that might be emerging for that client. Hmm. I mean, you, it seems like the, the catharsis you know, grabbing a bunch of stuff to smear on a white canvas could be mm-hmm. could feel really, really good. I guess talk just talk about how people can release all of these these pains and tensions. I guess some can just do it verbally, and some can do it visually. I guess right. So you know, clients do. Have, there's something that's very soothing about being able to process. I work with clients who are deeply traumatized, so sometimes the words are just they're not accessible or they're not even, you know, their, their traumas have been stored more physiologically, more as body trauma. And so they have to express it in a nonverbal way because that's the way to access those memories and those sensations. So processing them visually on a page without words is actually proven to be really helpful for clients who are deeply traumatized. Hmm. Um, so, you know, even post 9-11 in the 
you know, 9-11 recovery work that I have done and others from, in forms of disasters, clients can really relate images because when you think about the tough things that you've been through, most of us remember the visual. Yeah, right. We right. <laughs> yeah. So the images come before the words do. When I ask people to talk about something or kind of remember something that has been difficult for them, most of them will remember the scenes, the smells, the sounds of the experience, not so much the words because we're not there yet. Right. So that's how the images prove to be helpful. So really, and I guess too, in many ways, it's it's a way to get it out of you, and it also, I guess, as it as you change the meaning of it through the therapeutic process of talking to a counselor about what they're doing, then it can take new meaning. Then, then I guess the power is you always have the image if you want to keep it. Right. So the image does become what we call a running record. It does become a document of this was my experience and this is what I have been through. But for many people who have been traumatized, um, having someone else validate that experience to say, yes, this is something that was really um, tragic that you've gone through. Here it is. Let's talk about it. Let's look at it. And also the, the real work of trauma recovery is not to push it away or right. just close it up. It's really about integrating it into the self. So you, now it becomes a part of you. It's out there and it just becomes part of your life story. It, it seems in a way, um, and this maybe, I'm sure art therapy would work for everyone, but I've noticed like with my boys, um, if I go try to talk to them about an issue they're having and I kind of take it head on, it mm-hmm. doesn't seem to go as well as if I just have them shoot free throws with me <laughs> while we're talking. And it's almost Absolutely. like they don't know we're doing therapy. Absolutely. So, you know, engaging, especially in like more play or recreation-based activities works especially for young children because that's the language of their world. Most children are engaged socially through play. And so play and art making are natural forms of expression, especially for children. So keep up your good work with your boys because that's a great way to kind of connect to them. And then I guess, I mean, eventually they'll want to talk (laughs) like adults. (laughs) But maybe not, right? You never know. They're kids. I mean, they're actually getting older, but we're still shooting hoops. Um, oh, that's great. It's a great ritual. It really is. And um, so when we talk about the books, the these uh, coloring books, they really are um, – they're therapeutic but not therapy. Right. So they're, they're tapping into this kind of age-old therapeutic potential that as humans we have participated in since – early civilization, you know, like we've drawn on caves and we've done sand paintings and we've made pottery. And basically, each time we create, we're trying to have a better sense of who we are in the world. Think about like cave paintings or maps. There are ways to kind of navigate the external world. So the coloring books are a way for us to offer control. Um, They actually even have apps for your phone that can, you know, so you can color on the go. Mm. I don't think... I think there's something actually very sacred, though, about creating art in the like um, safe holding of someone else, of the therapist. But if you are home and you're feeling like you've had a tough day, you know, I would much rather see you, you know, color yeah. than do something else that might be a little bit more maladaptive or destructive to yourself. So, well, or even just turning on a blue screen and exactly. and start looking at your phone and being stimulated by your phone, maybe turning right. off some of those senses and allowing yourself to, well, what is it? What is it about coloring that is so cathartic? What, what is the, what is it about the process of actually just coloring something? Even if it's just those, 
uh, mandalas. What is it mm-hmm. that, that makes us so calm? It's a repetitive motion of coloring. You know, it's very predictable. And once again, we are creatures of like predictability and comfort. So in, a, in many senses, we like predictability. So if you're coloring in a form, let's say a shape on a coloring page, you're using repetitive motion, and that's meditative. Meditative like you know, knitting or perhaps even running is. It's the same motion repeated, and that's actually really soothing. Hmm. But then the end of the result, you have something that you've created that you yourself have created with your hands, and you're like, wow, this is really beautiful. And so I think we are constantly looking for that validation, you yeah. know, especially, you know, for younger people who are constantly, you know, seeking this kind of validation from others. So you've created something, some, and, and that can oftentimes feel a little bit safer than saying, let me sketch on a white piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Like so a note that think, might get thrown away. I mean, and it's – this is tangible. Is there something about humans, Mary Grace, that makes us want to be creators – Oh, I think it's just a, it's an absolute human need yeah. um, to be creative. And some of us, you know, it's called upon us um, in some of us more so than others. Like some of us take form in gardening or cooking or, but there is a creative potential, I believe, as an art therapist in all of us. And sometimes it's been squashed early on because, you know, we get these messages early on that you're not going to make a livelihood as an artist or you might, you know, there's a lot right. of stigma against creativity, especially as, you know, children emerge as, as young adults. So I think that that's always there, and we really should cultivate that. And I think that's probably why we're seeing a reemergence of this call for creativity. Hmm. Well, and the fact that it's making a lot of money for people. Right <laughs> well, the publishers, for sure. That's right. Publishers are gaining, <laughs> gaining by this yeah. trend. And those graphic artists that can make, uh, you know, a bunch of mandalas and circles. And Hey, hang, hang with us a bit, Mary Grace. We're going to take a break and come back, continue this discussion about um, art, uh, art therapy. And, sure. wow, it might be a powerful way for all of us to, um, to, to get healthier. And, and it, it maybe if you have a, a therapeutic issue, if you have something you're trying to overcome – and you've tried other forms of therapy. Maybe um, art therapy might be one that could help um, help open you up a little bit more. We'll take a break when we come back. Continue the discussion about uh, coloring bo- books for adults and really the, the great value of maybe just the chance to just relax and meditate. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. everybody to the Matt Townsend show little Jack Johnson for you oh he's got it he's got it going hey joining us uh, from New York City Mary Grace Barbarian she is an art therapist and is teaching us um, she's actually coming from the clinical uh, she's a clinical assistant professor of art therapy at NYU Steinart um, Steinhart She's the program coordinator for the um, graduate art therapy program there. And she's teaching us, you know, you hear about these uh, adult coloring books. They're great. 
not necessarily art therapy, or not necessarily art therapy, but they can be therapeutic. Mary Grace Barbarian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. This, uh, I mean, I, I guess if if we're calling it a mental uh, kind of yoga, it's a chance to sit, take a take a picture. Predict it's very predictable, like you said. You know, I'm probably most of us probably aren't shocked opening our coloring books, mm-hmm. and um, especially once we bought it and we know what's in it. But then the repetitive motion is the benefit of the coloring book. It's like knitting, doing something over and over. But then you have something tangible at the end. What are the other benefits um, of this type of of this type of process? Just using a coloring book. I think the coloring book. Um, process also relates to mindfulness, which is more of a cognitive behavioral technique where we really take in the here and now and uh, we are able to reflect on what we're feeling and also um, sensing in any given moment and avoid all the kind of I should be, ought to be, what you know, all the kind of stresses that we usually pervade us in our daily existence. So if you can just stop and tune that all out. Sometimes I tell people to turn down the volume in their head of all the thinking that goes on and just sit and create. Um, The coloring book also offers that opportunity for an opportunity for mindfulness to really take in the sight, sounds, and sense of your surrounding and really focus on your deep breathing, um, having your feet on the floor. And so in that way, I also feel like it can provide some relief. Is it – it seems like it – it could be a problem potentially for someone that's a perfectionist or maybe it's not. Um, you know what? I'm actually going to share. We, we have a number of incarceration facilities here in New York. And from what I know from supervising our student interns who have been working in those programs, some of the inmates who have been working in, who do, who actually do our therapy in the prison system, actually prefer a preformed image hmm. rather than creating their own spontaneously. And the question would be like, wow, when you have this opportunity for liberated expression, being imprisoned, wouldn't you prefer to just create? And the answer, as it seems, is that because they are being told what to do all day long, you know, by the correction officers and by the structure of the prison system, it's actually kind of scary, I believe, to be able to create spontaneously because then you're leaving yourself vulnerable for the expression that might be emerging. So what I have found for those um, inmates is that actually using a coloring book can actually, or using coloring forms in the therapeutic treatment can be really soothing for them. Now, once the image is created, then they'll sit with their you know, sit next to our therapist and they'll talk about them because most of these are group situations. But the image that they chose to pick from the pile of images that were available Hmm. or how they chose about coloring the images are also very relevant to where they are and, you know, how they're choosing to create. Is there a way uh, that we could maybe um, facilitate, I guess, not be a therapist, but is there a way that I could enhance my wife? So I bought her one. Her mother... My mother-in-law just passed away, uh, mm. in fact, yesterday. And, um, oh, I'm sorry. And she, thank you. And she's had Alzheimer's. And so my wife's been going through torture um, along with living with me and a bunch of kids. Um, but is there – and so we bought, I bought her this book because I just thought, oh, I think she'd really be good at that. She was a school teacher that I, when we were first married was always coloring. And um, I wonder, is there anything I can do 
to facilitate it, to help uh, to help it even be more therapeutic or more valuable um, of a kind of a release for her. You know, as an art therapist, I'm going to tell you that probably your wife, you know, could benefit from more than just the coloring. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, like, should I sit there and talk to her, or would that be antithetical to the? Um, you know what? I would maybe give her some space if she wanted to. You know, as a mom, as as you're describing her day to be really busy, maybe giving her some space where she can just silently be with herself and grieve the you know the the loss of her parent, who I imagine was pretty significant in her world. Um, giving her opportunities maybe at some point in the day where she can do that, but she probably would benefit from either speaking to someone um, about this significant loss. That would probably be helpful. But I understand how busy moms lives are, being one myself. So even if she was able to maybe look through a collection of images when she's ready of, you know, her mom and her and maybe creating a scrapbook as some sort of memorial for her mom, yeah. it would probably hold a much greater punch in terms of therapeutic treatment than the coloring pages would be. Well, in fact, she's made a blog. And oh, wonderful. for two, three years, pictures, stories about her mom yeah, it's and that's exactly what she's she's done. It's kind of natural then, isn't it, Mary Grace? It's almost like sometimes we kind of naturally know what we need to do to heal. We do, and even, you know, as you're referencing your wife and, and the significant loss that she's experienced, you know, holding on to the pictures, I think, speaks to the need that we have to retain the images. So when we lose a loved one, we usually carry around their picture, right? Or we have their pictures right. in the places that are safest to us because we want to remember them. We want to hold on to them. And the image itself becomes a memorial or a tribute to our connection to that person. It's not that necessarily we need to have that picture. It's what the picture represents for us as a, what we call a transitional object or as a moment of, of the relationship that we had shared. So that's actually very common. It's also very normative. It's, it's what we need to do as people. It's interesting, too. Um, as uh, she, my wife's been going through these photos, she's found one photo that she titled many, uh, many years ago, they were on a walk and her mom was walking up this trail and it was, you know, heading up the mountain and it just looked like, I think she titled it going home, but now it's become this symbolic picture and it's, it's exactly what she's doing. She's taking an image and kind of anchoring. This is, this is mom going home. And it's, and so I mean, it's it's so natural, isn't it? As humans, we kind of will naturally go there, and maybe I guess some something we just need to do is trust ourselves that it's worth like that we're doing the right thing. Like, go with it instead of Absolutely. constantly questioning ourselves. I often tell my clients to just trust their hands and to try to, as I said, turn the volume off in their heads mm. because our hands really do know how to solve things much quicker and much deeper oftentimes than our minds do. So we should just trust our hands more and trust that kind of inner voice. I, I totally support that idea. That's powerful. And you've even done this. So it sounds like you're doing it in, with with prisoners to help healing in the prison system as well as um, 9-11 victims and just citizens of probably New York City that all suffered through that. And you, and you also have done it with veterans. Well, so I supervise lots of our graduate interns. I haven't worked 
directly with our um, prisoners or with our vets per se, but I've supervised our clinicians working in those settings, and it is incredibly powerful work. Um, I think the potential of, of art therapy to reach audiences at all developmental needs and all psychological abilities is, is very well documented. So I fully attest to the power of art therapy working with clients for sure. What would you suggest as we wrap this up? Um, what's, what's the one thing that all of us could do um, to maybe process some of our, our feelings, uh, I guess, more in an artistic way? Or where should we begin if we're thinking, you know, art therapy might be for us? Okay, so if you, just to kind of process, or as I say, digest the day, if you will, um, you know, when you have some quiet space at home, <clears throat> just create, you know, doodle, create images, and just don't think so much, just allow your hands to move freely across the page and create. And then if you feel that there's um, some material there that you're maybe feeling conflicted about or needing some more support on. You know, the American Art Therapy Association has a therapist locator, so no matter where you are, you can type in your information and find a credentialed art therapist via the American Art Therapy Association's website. Hmm. So for all the listeners who are looking for an art therapist, you can easily find one close to you via that website. That's powerful. And it sounds honestly like, does it have to be intuitive in a way? So if, do you have to be leaning toward art anyway? Or can a really no. good art therapist find find the vein to get into it, find the, the, the method to do it? I'm not sure I understand your question. As an art therapist, do you mean? Or well, well so if I'm not artistic in nature... Um, if I still go see an art therapist, the art therapist will help me find some artistic method to to access my my mind. Absolutely. And for some clients, that might even be looking at a series of images for collage and putting together an image from pre-made images that you feel like hmm. is representing, you know, what you have, in an image that you might be struggling with in your mind or a relationship that you might be struggling with. So for sure, we will find the right media and the right avenue for anyone who comes to see us because by coming to see an art therapist, you are, you know, in neatly understanding that there is therapeutic potential to art making. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, Mary Grace Berberian, we appreciate you and your great work there at NYU. Oh, thank you so much. Best thank of you. Luck to you all. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank you. And thank you for being on the show. Um, folks, you know, it might just be a coloring book, but there are meditative benefits, right? There are, it does get you focused, it does make you more mindful. And then there's a deeper cut if, uh, if you really, if, if you're suffering and, and you've, you feel like you need, a little more help, make sure you go look up the American Art Therapy Association and uh, find somebody in your area, your neck of the woods, that can help you um, access your head, your heart through art. Powerful stuff, folks. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up uh, the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, therapy could be anything, right? It could be some people just have therapy running on a treadmill. Um, but we would probably not call that therapy. We'd call it therapeutic. 
there's it has a therapeutic benefit, but therapy would be where you engage a, a licensed counselor or somebody that a professional that knows what they're doing. Um, so, you know, the 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 gist is simply powerful tools. There's a lot of them, from yoga to meditation to coloring and coloring books. They're all there to help you uh, help you relax a little bit. Man, speaking of relaxing, Alabama police. Maybe they needed to relax. Responded to reports of suspicious bags that were left uh, that were later found to be full of hot dogs. The Florence Police Department responded to a call from a local post office reporting a suspicious package at 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning. Proceeded to examine the bags using X-ray technology. <laughs> they had to call out. Apparently, you know, the bomb squad probably because where else would you get X-ray technology? After inspection, the area was shut down because it looked like a bunch of sticks of dynamite, probably. You know, those things look like about the size of a dynamite stick. After inspection, the area was shut down as bomb technicians used a robot to remove the bags from the area. One of the bags was uh, ripped open during the transport, revealing a hot dog wrapped in aluminum foil. Mm-hmm. According to WHNT, police say they still don't know who left the bags filled with hot dogs at the post office. You all right, Ben? That kind of made me hungry. Apparently. Yep. You still eat like a, what, a dog? I've gotten that before. Who would leave? Who would go buy a bunch of hot dogs and leave them? What are you thinking? That's that's just a waste. You can't waste, folks. <laughs> and when they blew up the hot dogs, barbecue. It's just a really good barbecue. Can I get mine with sauerkraut, please? Um. Interesting stuff, folks. Well, you're here, right? You're here to uh, to make it through this crazy thing called life. Sometimes it looks like a bomb when really it's a hot dog. And sometimes it looks like just a coloring book when really it's therapy. You probably ought to slow down before you make some judgments on things. Um, it may not be what you think it is. That's uh, the lesson of the day right there. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Whole new hour, a whole new set of tools and information to help you live longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Doing what we can on the show to help you uh, live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives We can't do it for you, for heaven's sakes, but we can bring you the experts that can give you some guidance. And today uh, is no different. Today, Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us, assistant professor in the Department of Exercise Sciences here at BYU and the College of Life Sciences. We're going to be talking about low energy fatigue. Do you feel a lot of uh, fatigue? Do you feel tired? Do you feel, ugh, 
I would like to exercise. I just don't have the energy to. We will be talking about how to pick up that energy a bit and some of the reasons why you may be feeling low energy. Heaven knows. We all need it. Uh, You know, I got three hours of sleep. I'm pretty – I've got a lot of energy now, but I'm pretty sure about an hour I'm going to be in the fetal position under my desk. So deal with it. Don't knock on my door. Um, But uh, before we get to that, let's get to some more uh, fun news that's going on. Uh, You know, man, the Eagles. The Eagles will never be the same, folks. They'll never be the same with the passing of Glenn Fry, one of the founders of the Eagles. Mm. Take it easy, man. That's how you get more energy. You just take it easy. Oh. Man, the Eagles are a great band, and uh, we were talking about it in the first hour. My, I have memories. My sisters would listen to the Eagles and dance around the house. We'd clean to the house. We'd clean the house to the Eagles. And now, you know, they were only out, I guess, for about nine years. They were, they were a band together for nine years, produced a lot of great music. Um, but uh, Glenn Fry passed away. Young, too. 60-something. Man, what is the deal? David Bowie, Glenn Fry. You live the rock star life. It takes a few years off you. We'll have to talk to Dr. Ron Hager about that. He's an expert. I, I think living the producer life is like that, too. Producer life's pretty good. It's pretty hard. It's kind of relaxed. You just kind of hang out. Look busy. There's a lot of looking busy going oh, on. Oh, is that what you're doing? Yeah. That can be pretty tiring, can't it? It can be. You're trying to put up a front all the time Wouldn't instead it? of actually doing something. Whoa. Wouldn't it be better if we just actually got busy? I mean, it seems like you'd use the same amount of energy, but you might actually feel better at the end because you actually did something. I'm just saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll have to look into that. I think the studies are still inconclusive. <laughs> it just seems like if you if you were See, doing like, your job, you would you'd feel better because then you'd know you have a job tomorrow and not just you know have to go look busy with another job. Avoiding work could be therapeutic, right? But it's not therapy. Yeah, that was last hour. Oh, that was coloring books. Trying for to adults. equate coloring books to my work. Okay, but if you miss if you miss that, if your wife's like, "Hey, pick me up a coloring book," and you're thinking, "What?" Why do you want a coloring book? It's because it's therapeutic, not necessarily therapy. Yeah. I mean, it's just you're coloring, but it helps you get mindful and present. You can see somebody finding one of these books on, say, Amazon.com and going, wow, I could really help myself here and assume that that coloring book is therapy. Right. So whatever emotional problems you're dealing with, you could overcome them by simply using this coloring book. And that's what the guest was trying to tell yeah. us. That's not necessarily the case. You, you might be able to do the same thing knitting. Could be. Uh, or whittling. Mm-hmm. Right? Or, you know, Ben, he artfully shaves his body. During the show. Which yeah. adds to the therapy. And clips his nails. He does a lot of grooming during the show. Yeah. We'll talk to HR. Will you? Yeah, we'll try to get that stopped. Because I told you that last week and I haven't I know, seen anything I know, I know. It slipped my mind because, again, I was trying to avoid work. And then the minute somebody opens the door, there's just this 
the waft of air or whatever we call it, the breeze just sends clippings and hair. <laughs> I think HR is actually on my side. I've talked to them about it. I don't see how that can possibly I highly doubt that. Grooming, manscaping, <laughs> grooming, it's not. Just do that at home. Yeah. It's Take not care to be, of that. It's not to be done. Not for public consumption. Okay. So will you quit running around and just okay. go talk to HR? I'll talk to HR. Um, yeah. So what's going on in the news, Terry? Anything new that we haven't talked about today? Um, not really. There's At this time of the morning, there isn't a lot of breaking news. Nothing breaking. There isn't developing news. There are two, are, uh, two Iranian... No, one Iranian hostage that isn't going to come home, I guess, or well, that is, that is missing a little he's bit. He's not missing. They know He's just not coming home. He, he decided not to come home. So the story over the weekend, Washington Post journalist Jason Rezaian was reunited with his family at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. Rezaian held by the Iranian government on charges of spying for more than 500 days. Here's Jason's brother, Ali, on his brother's current condition. You know, he really seems very uh, positive, strong. He wants to come out of this stronger than before. And there's no reason that this had to happen. You know, Jason was, was one of the best spokespeople for Iran when he was there. For them to do this to him for 18 months is, uh, is just unconscionable. Three other Americans were released in the prisoner swap deal that occurred Saturday. There's pictures online of all mm. three of them happy and looking like, look, I'm not in jail anymore. A fourth American who was released opted to actually stay in Iran. Now, these were all, like, Iranian-Americans. Yeah. Right? So it wasn't like it was me deciding to stay at a foreign country. It was someone who identifies, lives in the country, yeah, and then was arrested, it. so yeah. he wants to stay. Well, and have you ever had a falafel? No, I have not. I don't know if they have them in Iran, but I would stay just for the cuisine. The other part of the deal, for the four that were released were swapped for the release of at least seven Iranian-Americans held in the United States on sanction-related charges. They were doing business with Iran while we had all the sanctions, and so they were pretty... And uh, several of those that were released chose to stay in the United mm. States. It's interesting. So it's not like they were going to go back. What happened and- to the good old days when we'd have a hostage release and they all came home? Right. What is happening? It's Trump. Is it Trump? Totally Trump. <sighs> I digress. Keep you going. Digress. In other news, search and rescue crews recovered three empty life rafts from helicopters involved in a crash off the Hawaiian coast that left two Marines or 12 Marines missing last week, the Coast Guard said this morning. A uh, fourth life raft was also spotted Sunday evening, though workers are still trying to retrieve it as of Monday. Uh, the Coast Guard says there is no indication from the sightings that any survivors have been aboard any of the life rafts. Uh, the 12 Marines were involved in a mid-air collision that had they had been conducting nighttime training mission off the uh, section of coast uh, of Hawaii, mm. and the two helicopters collided. Oh, that's sad. So they're still out there uh, looking for survivors, hoping for the best there. The richest 1% now has more wealth than the rest of the world combined. Yay! A, a new study released over the weekend. The anti-poverty group uh, Oxfam, which is Oxf- Oxfam, excuse me. Oh, good, because the um, Oxfam is different. I think that's different. how you clean your tires. Oxfam. The anti-poverty group on Sunday published its report on global wealth, the global wealth divide ahead of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, mm. which is coming up. Yeah. The report entitled An Economy for the 1% also found that the world's richest 62 people have as much wealth as the poorest half of the global population oh, and wow. that women are disproportionately affected by global inequality. So 62 richest people in the world have as much uh, wealth as half the globe. Okay. You, can, you want some advice? Go ahead. If I were one of these rich people, I wouldn't tell the other people. 
<laughs> keep that to yourself. I keep that quiet because the minute they find out, the group said that they warned that the knocking. gap, the gap between the richest and the rest, has way, has widened dramatically in the past twelve months. Hmm. So it's not just a uh, ongoing; it's a right now, yeah, situation that's happening. You know, I was reading in two Corinthians. Two Corinthians. And uh, I found uh, a lot of really great stuff about that. We'll consult uh, Donald Trump. He's an expert on two Corinthians. (laughs) A California attorney who unsuccessfully sued the government at least twice challenging the use of the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance has filed a federal lawsuit in Ohio challenging a similar phrase on U.S. currency and coins. Wow. The lawyer... Uh, Followed the suit last week in Akron. The lawsuit argues that the phrase, in God we trust, on U.S. money is unconstitutional and violates separation of church and state. The uh, lawsuit wants the phrase removed from all money. Wow. Yeah. Seems Uh, sort of dramatic, right? I don't know that I'd be ticking God off. Yeah. (laughs) That seems like just bad karma, bad idea. Man. So we'll see where that goes. All right. Also over the weekend, I found this. Humorous. This made me laugh. Okay, what? Authorities say a Canadian man was arrested while pulling a sled carrying more than 180 pounds of prescription pills across the border between the U.S. and Canada. <laughs> the U.S. Attorney, uh, U.S. Attorney's offices, the, the 21-year-old was apprehended Wednesday, last Wednesday after he crossed the border from Quebec along with the railroad line to north northern Vermont. Prosecutors say the man was wearing white camouflage and Border Patrol agents were alerted to his presence when he triggered a sensor along the border. Prosecutors say the agents found 300 vacuum-sealed bags of the anti-anxiety pill Xanax oh, wow. in a duffel bag. They say the pills had a street value of $1.6 million. What? He's just dragging what? them across the border on a sled. What? <laughs> I can't drag a sled? So the southern border, it's all about tunnels, yeah. submarines. Also, Osama found, bin Laden's crossing it. They found uh, fake carrots. Full of drugs over the weekend. Yeah, I saw you that. You see that? They're like they're vegetables. They Those look like vegetables. Were, they look more like yams. They were huge. Yeah, they were huge. Northern border. Yeah, sleds. Just sleds. pull them across on a sled. That's just that's just shows how bad it's gotten. We can't even get our meds cheap anymore. So no. so send Jimmy down with the sled. Oh man, they got him. They got him. Interesting stuff, folks. We're gonna take a break. Uh, are you low in energy? You feel a little fatigued, worn out, exhausted? Because if so, you're going to want to listen to this next segment. Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at Brigham Young University. He is going to be walking us through what uh, might be going on that's driving your energy levels down. Give us some uh, lifestyle help, some choices, some tools to, to overcome. The uh, low energy blues, folks. Yesterday, by the way, was like blues day. It was like the most depressing day of the year, supposedly, statistically. So we're going to get over that and pick up your energy if you'll stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us, uh, our wonderful contributor, Dr. Ron Hager, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at Brigham Young University. He's an expert in chronic illness and uh, is always trying to help us be healthier, happier, and today with more energy. 
<laughs> trying to trying to be more energetic. Except yes. I kept saying, "You ready, Ronnie?" You're like, "I'm too tired. I'm exhausted." Yeah. Well, first I had to wake up, but uh, but I'm here now. You made it. Uh, you know, you keep calling me an expert. I I can't. I, I just have to mention the word expert because every time I hear it, I think of something I learned years ago in my undergraduate what uh, cl- one of my undergraduate classes, uh, uh, Doctor Phil Olson. Uh, no relation to the other Dr. Phil. No, this is just Phil Olson, okay. um, who's recently retired from BYU. But I remember hearing him. He, he always used to you know, really emphasize being able to walk the walk, not mm-hmm. just talk the talk. And um, he, uh, he explained the word expert one time in class. And I've what never forgotten saying? it. He said that uh, – he said, you know what an expert is? He said, let's break it down. He said, X – is an unknown variable or component in mathematics. <laughs> yeah. And a pert is like a drip from a faucet. So an expert <laughs> is an unknown drip. Yeah, well, there you have it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so whenever you call me an expert, It's man, offensive. I, it's offensive. I just you're not an expert. But, I just you, can't help but think about that. But you, you're, you're a well-read professor. I try to be, yeah. And, and who, who walks the talk. You're, you're the real deal. And when I'm I asked to. you, I said, I have clients, I have friends, family, neighbors. Yeah. A lot of people I'm hearing that are talking about their low energy. They just lack energy. And yeah. I'm pretty sure that if we just asked, if we followed the marketing on television, they would tell us there's a pill for that. Probably. But yeah. you would say what? Well, I, I, I think there can be some very specific, I guess what you might call medical conditions, you know, where maybe some type of uh, pharmacology or other type of treatment may be necessary. But in, in my experience, not only for myself personally, uh, but for for many others that I've interacted with, one of the assignments I give in my chronic disease prevention class sounds like a crazy class. Yeah, it is, it is crazy. But one of the assignments I give is a a four week long uh, approach to healthy eating. I call it hmm. the flexitarian diet. So you might say it's like a semi vegetarian. Essentially, it just means that for four weeks you're going to try and uh, improve your diet by eating uh, less refined foods. Uh, and, you know, that's actually kind of an oxymoron if you think about it because much of the stuff we stick in our mouth, I, you couldn't even really call food. Yeah, right. I mean, think about all the things you eat that either have or don't have a nutrition label on it because if it has a nutrition label, it means it's been processed or refined or, you know, <laughs> yeah. manufactured in some way. So the goal is for four weeks to eat more plant-based, whole whole, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, uh you know, just try and do a better job of eating. And and then I have the students write a one-page report on that, on their experience. And and not not every time, but I mean, I have a couple hundred students every semester in this class. And nearly all of them say the same uh, thing. There, at least there's one common thread. They say, when I first started doing this, uh, I, I found my energy level was low. Huh. And so they, they complain, basically, that when they switch their diet, th- their energy level went down. And then this, another thing happens. They all say, but after the first week, I found I had more energy. I found I slept better. I found that I could concentrate more. I stayed awake in my classes better. Interesting. So then so, the energy rebounds back. So it's almost like the body is kind of hitting a reset button and kind of uh, you know just uh, getting used to something new. But I, I find that that's, that interesting, and there's other research to show that diet, especially, can be a critical piece 
and helping you to have the energy that you need. Because, I mean, really food is the source of our energy. Right. Now, there can be other complications, like maybe a person has diabetes, and the foods they eat cannot be used effectively because of lack of insulin or, or lack of insulin sensitivity. And, and so in that case, there may be you know, the need for some other things like a medication uh, to help them. Uh, but and, and I know for myself, and I, I'm guessing you can say the same thing, that you know that when you're eating better, making a concerted effort to eat the things you know you should be and not making excuses like, well, I don't have time or yeah. I just need something quick, that you actually feel better. Oh, for sure. So, so, so I think that's a big one. But if you think about it, it's your body, and if your energy is low, there's a reason. Yeah. And it's, it could be food, but it could be physical exercise. It could sure. be diet or sleep, but it also could be illness or something else is sure. going on. But it, so it's, it really is our responsibility to track it down. Yeah, I, th- I think Figure so. Figure it out. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you know, you can have the help of a doctor or you can go in for a checkup. I mean, maybe, uh, you know, this is probably the most common cause of fatigue in women or lack of energy, low energy is anemia, mm. low iron. Yeah, low iron. And there, you know, th- that could be associated with the menstrual, men- menstrual cycle. It could be associated with... Uh, um, uh, menopause, mm-hmm. you know. If they chew ice, that's a hormone. sign. <laughs> they chew that's ice. That's the telltale sign. Yeah. All my my daughter that just had a baby, my wife has always been chewing her ice. We went and had her levels checked. Iron. She has iron deficiency. Iron deficiency. Yeah. So you can take a supplement. So and, and it's a simple blood test. Yeah. So you know that may be something you know where a doctor can help you figure that out. But I like what you're saying in in the sense that you know you kind of need to. Do a little bit of experimenting on yourself, maybe a little self-observation and paying attention to what's going on in your life and seeing what you can do to figure it out. Um, but, real, but don't necessarily start – you don't have to start with some horrible disease. No. It could just be diet, sleep, exercise. Yeah. Are you, you doing those? And, and you know, sleep can be you know, uh, either, either inconsistent sleep or you know, just not adequate, not enough sleep. There's a lot of reasons for that. People are just busy. Things happen in life. Uh, but if it's a chronic thing, then maybe it's something like sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are also other kind of, I guess, sleep disorders. Uh, people who do a lot of shift work have trouble transitioning. Oh, yeah. Or people who travel a yeah. lot, maybe jet lag, you know, these kinds of things. So, you know, that that might be helpful. But all of that, Matt, it can at least be compounded. You know, the the negative effects of those things can be compounded if you're not eating right, if you're not exercising regularly. Um, and a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, I have low energy, but you're telling me I need to go exercise? How does that work? Right. Um, it, it's not so much that, uh, you know, you're being asked to do more than you should. Um, but, for example, a person who exercises regularly generally will report that they sleep better at night. Yeah. So if, you, if you're sleeping better, then you're recovering and you tend to have more energy and not, not be, uh, you know, falling asleep at your desk or you know, or whatever. That's what I mean. What I always get every time you talk, Ron, is th- it's a sign. So the energy is. I look at it like a. It's a uh, dashboard in your car. Right. It's just. It's just a. It's just a measurement. Yeah. Energy is a measurement, and if, if it's if it's dropping, it's telling you something. And you need to get track kind of, it down. Figure out. You need to kind of get to the root cause, mm-hmm. right? So, 
Uh, because know, it could also be psychological, right? It could be depression. It could be situationally absolutely. you're going through something yeah. that – Yeah, and, and depression can be something that's just situational. There can be triggers, but it can also be something chemical, in mm-hmm. which case, uh, you know, maybe if your serotonin levels are not where they should be, you know, then, then you might need, you know, an actual intervention. Yeah. You know, something uh, medicinal or medical. Uh, but even when it comes to depression, uh, there's – Good evidence to show that you know exercise, exercise diet, yeah, right. regular sleep uh, uh, can be going can, there can, can be as effective as uh, traditional therapies. What about this one? So let's say that you're down, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you think, "Hey, all I need is just an energy drink. Right. If I could just get my caffeine in, right, then that'll give me the energy I need." Well, what's, lot, what's lot, wrong lot, with a that? Lot, a lot of people live like that. Either yeah. either you know with their coffee or these. Uh, or these energy shots, you know, just cow, these know. little, uh, you know, one or two ounce things, you know, that gives you, you know, extended, uh, you know, energy or something like that. Uh, I would say that that's not the way to go, that that's right. kind of dangerous. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, can relate to, uh, you know, kind of a caffeine overload where uh, you're, you're kind of jittery, uh, you're nervous, your heart rate goes up, sometimes your blood pressure even goes up. Uh, and your metabolism is up as well because that's, you know, caffeine is a stimulant. Yeah. But because it's artificial, it's not really addressing the root cause. It's not really solving the problem. It might just be masking the symptoms. And maybe you find that that's how you cope or how you get through it. But until you address, you know, what's the actual cause, uh, you know, you're going to be left, you know, maybe in a, in a state of, you know, caffeine overload, which oh. can actually lead to increased fatigue. Well, and I'm assuming too, eventually, like I've heard, I don't know if it happens, but burn out your adrenal glands and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're shot. Yeah. And then you don't even have your own natural booster. Right. So it's right. all fake boost. You yeah. need the energy drink supposedly, yeah. but it's actually killing you. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's take a break. We'll come back okay. uh, more with Dr. Ron Hager here from the Department of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. We're taking on fatigue, low energy, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, live longer, hopefully. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, in studio with Dr. Ron Hager. He is uh, a chronic disease prevention expert. (laughs) He always likes me to add the other The expert part. He's an expert in chronic disease. He doesn't like to be called an expert, so we're not even going to call him that. An unknown drip. But you are an unknown drip, an expert. Um, But talk about, we're talking fatigue, low energy. A lot of you may be just too tired. It just seems like you you just don't have the energy you need. And there's a million reasons. You've got to figure out yours. But I would start, as our good doctor has taught us, with diet, exercise, and sleep. There we go. The, the, The triad, the trinity of health. There you go. I like I like well you know it it is important and a lot of times people thought that you could get by you know that if if you could get by if you could manage on very little sleep that you're okay but yeah 
But now more and more research is showing that uh, lack of lack of sleep or irregular sleep yeah. uh, can lead to other uh, conditions like uh, heart disease. Um, uh, it, 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 is this even the okay? So it, it can affect your blood pressure. But you know these people that say, "Ah, you know what? I really, I really only need five hours of sleep." And in five hours, they pop up. Now, are they just kidding themselves? You know, I think do they have a sleep problem? I think there actually may be some people out there. I mean, nobody. One of the things we fall into all the time, Matt, is we 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 kind of adopt this one size fits all. Yeah, the you know, norm. I mean, you've heard things like everybody should get 10,000 steps a day. Everybody should drink eight glasses of water a day. Everybody right. should get eight hours of sleep a night. I actually think there are some people who need more oh, yeah. and some people who need less. Mm-hmm. And and not because, uh, you know, they have other conditions like, you know, depression keeps them in bed. Uh, I just think that you know, when a person gets in touch with what their needs are, what their body's trying to tell them, that they can figure these things out. So, yeah, I do think that there are people. Now, I think it's ridiculous to say, you know, to, for, for a person to say, I only need three hours of sleep every night right. and I'm fine. No, I don't, I, don't think Try to get, yeah. I don't think that's feasible. But generally speaking, seven to eight hours of sleep. Now, what happens if you have trouble falling asleep at night? Maybe you lay in bed for a couple of hours, you know, before you actually fall asleep or you wake up earlier than you wish you would and you can't go back to sleep. Uh, you know, that that could actually be related to some other things. Um, some things uh, are, you know, maybe kind of obvious, but maybe people just don't see it, like uh, cell phones or laptops or tablets or TVs, mm-hmm. you know, like in the bedroom. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many people lay in bed and, you know, are looking at, you know, something on their phone, you know, checking their email or sending a text or looking at some social media app or something like that? And, I mean, that kind of gets your brain going. Oh, the experts we've had on the show say no screens after nine. Yeah. Because the blue light wakes you up. Yeah. And no caffeine after three in the afternoon. (laughs) That's what they say. (laughs) Well, I'm like, wow. I would would agree. But so, I mean, there could be these little lifestyle things that we do that we're not even paying attention to. I think that's a great place for everybody to start. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and obviously there may be some cases of maybe somebody has sleep apnea. This is where... For whatever reason, uh, it, it's not entirely, but often associated with being overweight or right. obese, uh, where you actually stop breathing. You know, some you know the throat basically closes up. You stop breathing. Uh, uh, you know, your your body uh, fails to get enough oxygen, uh, doesn't release enough uh, carbon dioxide, and uh, and and you actually wake up, even though you might not know you're waking up, and so you have a pretty fitful. Uh, mm. rest. And uh, so sleep apnea can be a problem uh, if that's the case. And usually, you know, if you have a spouse or something, they can recognize that yeah. or, or help you at least, you know, say, yeah, you know, I, you kept gasping for air and you stopped <laughs> breathing last night. Uh, and you can say, oh, no, I don't do that. But but if it's happening, then you could actually go someplace and get a sleep study where you'd stay overnight in a facility and they hook you up to, you know, an EKG and, uh, you know, a, 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 an eye movement device, you know, that tells you, you know, tells them whether you get into REM sleep, this mm-hmm. rapid eye movement sleep, where you need to be to get the rest you need. So you can actually have a sleep study. And if they find out that you have sleep apnea, then uh, you can get a machine, a device uh, called a CPAP, which kind of uh, is kind of a constant air pressure machine that helps keep the airway open. And I've never used one, but I've talked to people who have, and uh, they say it makes a world of difference. I mean, it it changed their life. And then what happens is 
they oftentimes, you know, if they lose weight, if that was the cause of the sleep apnea or they change their diet or whatever, then sometimes they can actually recover. And then yeah. they don't need the CPAP machine anymore. Yeah. This, this can happen uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, you know, I know people who have a gluten intolerance. Mm-hmm. So they have basically what you might call a minor food allergy. I'm not talking about like celiacs or right. something, but just they, you know, they don't break out in hives or a rash or have an anaphylactic shock reaction. But there may be foods that, a people, that, that people are eating uh, that just don't set too well with them, cause gastrointestinal distress, or maybe, like I said, there's a gluten intolerance or a lactose intolerance. Yeah. And if they can figure that out by doing a little experimenting, eliminating some foods, trying to eat other, maybe more natural foods, uh, seeing if that helps, then a lot of times they feel better, they have more energy, they sleep better, they're not as restless and fitful. And then... Uh, their body makes an adjustment, and then they can begin to add uh, gluten-containing foods or lactose-containing foods back into their diet in in small amounts, and then they're just fine. And learn. Sure. I mean, to me, it's if I've learned that I can't eat after eight o'clock, or I won't sleep well. Yeah. So. It's actually earlier than that, seven o'clock. But, so, so, so you figure these things yeah, out, right? and then write your code. Then that's your code. That everyone needs a health code, right? And because everyone's going to be different, but I guess part of this is if you get into the food part of it, check out allergies. Get into the exercise part of it. You might find out uh, certain exercises do give you more energy. Other exercises don't. I have a or intensity or right? intensity. Yeah, I have sure. I have a friend that coaches marathoners and. He won't let his son run one. Yeah. And he's like – he's cause, and the data he says is out there, but his son could run a marathon today and he won't let him do it. Well, it's a special kind of person that can run a marathon for sure. That's right. Um, and, it, and it depletes and it has impact and so – Well, I, I, I think what you're saying is uh, figure out who you are, what affects you and take that responsibility on yourself. A lot of people – this is so frustrating sometimes, but a lot of people act like their body – is like a car, you know, and yeah. if it's got a fender bender or it's damaged, they take it to the body shop the doc. to be fixed, right? Right? You know, fix me up, doc. Yeah. And and and, and I'm glad that we have medical professionals and a, uh, you know, well, I guess I call it a disease care system, but we tend to have a health care system that, you know, where we do have access uh, to some extent. Um, but you can even do your own research. You can look online. WebMD is a great resource. Uh, you know, there there are valid. Uh, opportunities, you know, to learn about what might be affecting you, it's not, it's it's more your responsibility than the doctors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times people go to doctors and the doctor does everything they know how to do. They do all kinds of tests, blood tests, everything they can think of, and nothing seems to work. You know, nothing, there is no diagnosis. They can't, you know, you think, well, maybe it's low iron, but it's not. You know, or maybe, you know, they they test some hormone levels, but everything's normal. You know, thyroid hormones are normal, which, you know, can affect your metabolism and and how your body uses energy. But it's all all good. But the person says they're still fatigued. Mm -hmm. So then they say, well, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. we tried everything else. Which is basically what's left after they have tried everything they know and they can't figure it out. So you have chronic fatigue syndrome. (laughs) And, you know, and sometimes they'll even recommend medications for that. but but what effort did you make other than report symptoms? You know, mm-hmm. have you tried anything? And, you know, sometimes people do and sometimes they don't. But usually if you can figure out what's going on with the pattern in your life, 
it can be helpful. Yeah. You know, you, you, if you're not getting regular exercise or regular physical activity, I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? Right, right. And if you're eating everything out of a box, bag, bottle, or jar, <laughs> then, then, Lunch. Maybe, then maybe that's a problem, too. That's true. That's right. You know, so, you know, it, there, there's some obvious common sense things that I think people tend to overlook, and then they switch to the quick fix. Yeah. You know, the instant energy drink or, or even the medication. Yeah, or the power bar or the, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you, Doctor Ron Hager. Um, it's it's your energy. It's our energy. Let's. He's not an expert, folks. <laughs> That's right. But he he does play one on the radio. <laughs> Thanks. Good stuff. Uh, again, if you want uh, to find out more about Ron, you can just look him up. BYU. He's an assistant professor here in the Department of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences. He's eighty nine years old. Looks like a thirty year old. Amazing. <laughs> anyway, you bet. That's a, that was a compliment. Um, really, he's in. He's just, and he walks his talk, which we all need to do. We'll take a break, folks. Come back with our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. I don't know why we have this music, but Ben chose it because he says it's his favorite cartoon ever. This reminds me of Mickey dancing with some brooms. Is that what this is? Sorcerer's Apprentice. Fantasia. Let's shoot it down to uh, two sorcerers, I guess, um, uh, there at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. I know it's Fantasia, but I keep thinking it's... Pinky and the brain, Pinky and the brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. Kind of how our show is. That's exactly. Who's the genius? You know. <laughs> yeah. We don't have to answer that. Yeah. Uh, Everyone I, knows. Yeah. We don't need to explain this. Um, did you shave? Are you, you talking to Jeremy Spencer? To? Both yes, of you. Technically, I did shave this, this morning. This is Brian Logan. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, Jeremy, you shaved. Yes. Ah. They beat Gonzaga, dude. And then what happened? Then they lost to Portland. I'm wearing a purple (sighs) shirt in honor of the Portland Pilots today. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Slash the Minnesota Vikings. How do you beat Gonzaga on the road? Okay, okay, here's the thing. I am going to instruct you in something, and you will will appreciate me for teaching you this, okay? teach me. It is gone. Gone. Zag. Gone. Zag. Gonzaga. Yes. Gone Zag. Listen, uh, they're nicknamed the Zags. Yeah, not the Zag. What's a Zag? That's a great question. Nothing. Well, well it's, it's just the, a play they're off the Bulldogs. Of their, yeah, but they it's go a by playoff the of their their team name. But here's the thing: don't the, feel bad because no. you and about seventy eight percent of the entire country, Oregon, Nevada. it's like well, it's like Gonzaga. Nevada. We were talking about that earlier. Yes, Gonzaga. Gonzaga. It sounds very uh, backwoodsy. Right. Totally. But that's what it is. They are in Spokane, so that's appropriate. Oh, well, there you go. You see them Gonzaga Bulldogs? <laughs> they BYU beat Gonzaga by one point. That sounded so awesome. Did you like that? Uh-huh. And then Portland. I know. I know. Well, here's the thing. You guys got to get on it. Okay, Come on. Couple, you two. I didn't miss a shot. There you are, two. There are a couple of things in play here, I think. Yeah. Okay, I when I looked at the whole thing, I was like, you know what? I, I shouldn't be that shocked that this happened because... BYU, I feel like, has been on the road forever. Okay? 
There is there is a stretch this season, 49 days. Wow. In 49 days, BYU will have played three home games. Mm, that's a lot of road. Okay. And you come off that super high emotional win against Gonzaga, and you expend so much energy and effort, and you're riding high. The natural course of that is for there to be a little bit of a letdown. True, true. In Portland – BYU was supposed to win that game. They're not a great team. Well, guess what? Teams sometimes in their home gyms shoot really well. If BYU didn't have good defensive intensity. They certainly weren't as good defensively as they were against Gonzaga. Team gets hot. They're not guarding the three-point line. Things like this happen. There you go. See? You just summed it up. I don't even have a question. BYU shouldn't let that happen, and any player or coach on that team will say, we absolutely need to win that game. Yeah, BYU needs to get to the point where – they lose less of these kinds of games. Granted, I'm okay if, okay, not, yay, I'm okay if, you know, one-ish of these happens a year, but BYU's averaging about three a year of non-St. Mary's Gonzaga losses. Mm. So that, that's an issue. You can't compete for conference championships if you're going to lose to non-St. Mary's Gonzaga teams Does, with regularity. Do, uh, d- tell me about your lip, Jerem. Does it look does it look kind of red and torn up or does it no, is the, it baby we, soft? We did a show yesterday. So Oh, that's right. Yeah, in. you worked yeah. yesterday. Yeah, we shaved yesterday. By we and <sighs> I'm just still disappointed. I wanted to see you really get that stash going. That's him. <laughs> that's him. <laughs> did you guys see um the Warriors play Cleveland Cavaliers? Watch the highlights. I'm telling you. Did you see LeBron do a little throwdown? Mm-hmm. He does that every game. Does he? Yes. Just never to, you know. He's ridiculous. No, that the point is he is he is incredibly athletic. He reminds me of myself when I was younger. When you say throwdown, you mean throw? Uh, he threw Steph he threw Curry Steph Curry down. down. That's what you're talking about, right? Not a dunk. Yeah, not a dunk. Right? But he tried to dunk Steph he Curry. Threw Steph Curry on the ground. He he tossed him like oh, a. Oh, that throw! See, I did not see that. Tossed yeah. him like a pancake. But Steph had the last laugh. They. They won. Destroyed them. Yeah, yeah. see, I saw the, the, the Warriors Humiliated won. them. Yes. But at 132 on their home court. Are you guys Are you guys ready to tell me who's going to win the Super Bowl? Is it Next too early? Week. In two weeks. Yeah, who? We've got a while. No, I know, but who's, I, I want to who, know who you think is going to. Who makes gonna, their Super Bowl predictions when before right. the conference championship games? That's a, that's that, a challenge. To me, that's what the experts should be saying and doing. I would do that, but I don't want to. You don't want to. Because I want to give myself a 50% chance instead of a 25% <laughs> chance. In fact, I'll double my odds. I, I'll, okay, I'll tell you right now. So mine. Who do you have? I'm going with the Panthers. The Panthers. It's a good pick. They're the best team to never give up a 31 to nothing point lead. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's so rude. <laughs> Jeremy's just angry. He doesn't they, like the Panthers because they, they, almost, beat, they knocked his Seahawks out. The, I know, but Seattle, they deserved it. Seattle BYU'd it. Yeah, they did. That, that yeah, boy, that too was much an, too that, early. That was an interesting game, but I'm afraid it's it's going to be Carolina. I'm not afraid. I'm excited. Yeah, it'll be interesting. They host Arizona this week. You know who I want it to be? I well, want yeah? the Arizona Cardinals to win. Oh, the that would be cool. Mm-hmm. They've earned it. Fitzgerald, I, I like. He, he, he's a great guy. By winning. I don't. I just don't know if they can win at Carolina. Yeah, no. I kind of am sad that they can't play each other in the finals, but whatever. Who, Arizona and Carolina? Yeah. Can't do it. The real Super Bowl. (laughs) And then is Peyton Manning's swan song? Oh, would that be the best? Against. No. 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 Let's let him win it all the way. And then he retires. Like he comes back just to lose to Tom Brady? No, he can't. He's going to win. 
The game is in Denver, which... He's got to win yeah. that. And then, then he can go to the Super Bowl, win the Super Bowl, and then retire. Maybe I'm changing my vote. I don't see how that happens, okay, given well, the state no, of his arm. Just like Elway. Your mind tells you the Panthers are going to win. Your heart is telling you yes. you want okay, there you go. to ride off into uh-huh. the sunset right. with the Broncos. Right. That uh-huh. would crush any doubters in terms of his postseason legacy because it's right now it's like, okay, you got one, but what else you got? Right. Like, you're the best regular season quarterback. You have one title, but you're not in the best ever conversation because of your postseason play. But that would be a and drop the mic moment. Counting his four Super Bowl rings and six appearances. Right. <sighs> it's going to be. It's. It can't be him. I have. It's got to be. It's a compelling weekend, though. Yeah, this going to be because you have one versus two in each division. In fact, are you guys Conference. just caught up in the NFL now? Or are you guys still doing your show? Oh man, no, we oh, are all always. in on today's show as what, well. What's today's but show? We are caught up in the NFL. Oh, you're like doing both. Players. You're sports fanatics. Yeah, I love the postseason and also like in all sports. Yeah, it's enjoyable. I actually am afraid when this when football ends, it's the time of the year that I like the least. The time is, until March. There is March seasonal Madness. depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is seasonal depression. And then March gets get me to March Madness. That's great. And then then life really gets boring. After then, the, it's the, then it's baseball like, season. Hey, look forward to the NFL draft, which is there's a big build up to that. Mm. It's not but the same. Like, sports station every day all summer. Yeah, we do our part. That's true. That, that's uh, that's true. Extend the bridge, I'll just fill man. it with that. That's a great point. The the countdown is amazing. Mm-hmm. On the show every day, Ju- June and July the countdown. are June and July are interesting. Yeah, yeah. By interesting, we mean vacation days. <laughs> June and July, that's when you Paging guys take Brian a break. Logan. When, that's when Brian kicks up his game. What uh, What's on your show today? I ask you this question. Okay. What is more likely to happen in 2016? A West Coast Conference title for BYU men's basketball or a top 25 ranking at the end of the season for BYU football? in Kalani Satake's first year? Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Great question. Okay, so that okay. is the premise of today's conversation. We have Jeff Judkins in studio, jack of all trades, former NBA guy, current yeah. coach of BYU women's basketball. His team's rolling. He'll sound off on the Twitter rolling, question. Rolling, rolling, Absolutely, they are rolling. Also, Blaine Fowler will join us on the Desert First Credit Union Hotline later. Mm. Nice, nice sponsor. Of course. Hey, I do it for the people. I do it for DFCU, man. You guys, it's another great show with two fantastic gentlemen. <laughs> when they arrive, we'll let you know. One yeah, call me the when genius, they're here. The other's <laughs> insane. We'll let you decide that. <laughs> what we're going to do today, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> I love it when you guys break into song Mickey. together. Take over the world. <laughs> well, um, I think it sounds great. <laughs> and, if you love musicals, <laughs> folks, you're going to want to stick with BYU Sports Nation. Yes. Animaniacs, dude. Have a great, Underrated. have a great show, gentlemen. Thank you. Knock Dr. them dead. Matt. That's okay, cool. Bye. Okay, bye. Goodbye. Bye bye. Um, that's they break into song. We never break into song on this show. What is our deal? Am I the only one that can carry a tune? Sorry, Ben. I'll play some music. You can sing to it. No, you just picked Fantasia of all the songs to toss to the good brethren downstairs. That's a classic. That is a classic. Speaking of classics, uh, let me give you a little courtroom etiquette, okay? Just two really quick lessons. An uh, an Illinois woman intentionally sneezed in a bailiff's face, (laughs) spattering her with mucus-type substance in the county courtroom. Melissa... (laughs) 
Okay, okay, okay. Uh, Ben's very sensitive to sound. Um, Melissa Estelle, 24, was jailed on battery charge in connection with the alleged aggravated sneezery. Estelle was in court last week for a traffic case when a bailiff repeatedly reprimanded her for putting her feet on the seats and speaking loudly while the judge was on the bench. Estelle then got up from her seat, approached the bailiff face-to-face within three to four inches and intentionally sneezed into the bailiff's face. (coughs) That's when she should have been tased. You tase her right then. She'll never sneeze again. You're given a taser for a reason, I feel. Yeah. And that's what I don't you use think it. it's I don't think it's utilized as much as it needs. I think right there, that's taser. Yeah. I don't know if that's a word. Taze it. Taze it. <laughs> that'll, that'll like dry up those mucous membranes. <laughs> the bailiff takes it into his own hands. Taze it. Um and uh anyway, I, I won't even tell you the other one. We'll get to that one tomorrow because <laughs> Now that we know that we can tase it, seriously, if you do, just for anybody out there, if you have mucous membranes that um, are bothering you, tase it. That's my new, that's my new theme. Hey, uh, have a hard time, you know, with closing your pores? Tase them. Tase it. That's a great product. Forget Accutane. Yeah. Got a kid with a little breakout? Tase it. <laughs> That's horrible. Hey, we always like to end the show with a hero of the day story. Here's our hero. What a great story. Hopefully, I think, giving you hope about our our youth today. Just days before Christmas, an Iowa high school wrestler collapsed during a match and died hours later. During the school's first home duel meet since his passing, an opposing wrestler forfeited his match and drew the adoration of everyone in the gym in the process. Austin Roberts of Spencer was uh, 14-0 during his senior season when he collapsed during the championship match of the Spencer Tiger Invitational on December 19th. He died within hours at Spencer Hospital. Ahmed Castro Chavez of Esterville Lincoln Central High School was on the mat next to Roberts that day. He had lost to Roberts earlier in the season, and when the team returned to Spencer last Thursday, there was no one to wrestle Castro Chavez in the 220-pound weight class. So instead of taking six points for his team due to the forfeit, Ahmed did something that no one was expecting. Castro Chavez, with his team traveling, uh, trailing 22-3, forfeited the game. He left his warm-ups on and went to the front row of the bleachers where Austin Roberts' mom, Lori Roberts, and grandfather were seated. Ahmed told the Sioux City Journal, I wanted to show Austin's family respect because they are grieving. I told Austin's mom that I wished I could wrestle Austin again because he was such a good wrestler. How cool is that? Um, in fact, many of the people there said it's, it's the, the hairs on the back of their neck were standing up after that event. Anyway, it was an honor to wrestle Austin, he said. So Ahmed Castro Chavez, he's the hero of the day. Cool stuff. Cool stuff, folks. The youth have got it. Not all of them, of course, right? But neither do the adults. So uh, let's take care of each other. Let's make life better, a little easier for each other. And let's look out for each other. That's why we're doing this. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care. Watch each other's backs. We'll be back again and talk tomorrow. Take care.